Mr. Robot, Season 2, Episode 7, Handshake, is over. But we're just getting started here at Post Show Recaps on the Mr. Robot Podcast. Hello, everyone. Hello, friends. I'm Antonio Mazzaro. I am the co-host of this show. The other co-host of the show still missing, Josh Wiggler. We don't know where he is. Is he in a trunk somewhere? Is he going to descend in the middle of this podcast from a staircase with this sweeping music behind him? It's not sure, but I'll tell you, our reality is about to be changed because Mike Bloom is in the house. Mike, how are you? I'm doing well, Antonio. We are recording this on the eve of my 27th birthday, and I cannot think of a better gift to usher in the big 2-7 with Season 2, Episode 7, ironically enough, of Mr. Robot, which a lot of people are saying is one of the best episodes of the series to date. I am extremely grateful that Josh is off at his all-white party so that I'd be able to come on and talk to you about this. Oh, wait a minute. Uh, what kind of party is he attending? You know what? Don't say that. But yeah, it's, a, it's uh, pa- Paul Ryan intern gathering. No, he's dressed to the nines, Josh Wiggler. He's just given me a new pair of earrings. He likes to give me little gifts when he's not here. He will be back next week. Mike, I'm so thankful that you're here. You really do luck out, Mike. We talked about this on the last Mr. Robot podcast. You jumped in on our Better Call Saul podcast with Rob Sesternino and I. You subbed for Rob during the 5-0 episode of season one, which is widely considered to be the best episode of Better Call Saul. You jump in here, Mr. Robot, back to back two weeks with mind-blowing episodes where the season has really picked up and we have a lot to talk about here mike even though you haven't been in from the beginning i know you listened to everything josh and i talked about you sent us a lot of feedback you were part of the discussion so you know where this theory has been in terms of the prison where what what elliot's reality is what it isn't you know that this is something that's been cooking since the beginning of the season mike were you satisfied with the reveal Satisfied is such an operative word here because I feel like, and maybe I'll turn the question back on to you about this. Jerk. You have to, you have to wonder, being part of a community that does dive so much into the granular aspects of this show, some might argue that that sort of ruins the surprise for them. I know that there has been at least one good friend of Post Show Recaps who has told you and Josh, you, do, you guys do great work, but I'm going to tune out and listen to your recaps at the very end of the season because I don't want to get too wrapped up in everything and ruin my enjoyment of it. And I know certain fishy detractors of Mr. Robot would argue things like, well, these, you know, when the when the twists are too telegraphed from the beginning, it, it impedes your enjoyment of the season, which I would disagree with. That being said, I mean, the breadcrumbs were definitely leading us to this candy house. I do not feel that it mitigated my enjoyment of the twist, especially as I'm sure we'll talk about the actual reveal of it. And of course, what this is going to set up. This reveal, unlike the others, which took place in episodes eight and nine of last season, fairly near the end, this one takes place a little bit over the halfway point. It's almost setting up this, this metaphorical third act of this season, which is, has kind of blown everything wide open in finding out that our protagonist has been incarcerated for the past seven episodes. And now that he's apparently getting out, what does the world actually look like? So while I will say, I wouldn't call it predictable, but it has been predicted before, it didn't impede my enjoyment of it at all, and the prospects of what's to come really excites me. Now, I want to turn it on to you because you were the one that really brought this theory to the table in the very first episode of season two. Having been in this camp since the very beginning of the season, were you slightly unhappy that you would kind of spoil spoiled yourself on it after the reveal was made? 
Yeah, I no, I wasn't. And I, I'll get into that in just a moment here. I do want to say that this, of course, is a very uh, – what's the word I'm looking for? I don't know. It's very much a hot-button issue, this twist. Yeah, very, You're right. very polarizing. You name-checked a couple people by, uh, by not mentioning them there, and I understand who you're talking about when you talk about Umberto, great friend of Post Show Recaps, and Stephen Fishback talking about the twist of this show. Uh, and I think that my mind and Josh's mind have always been, I feel free to speak for him here, have always been focused not on the journey so much, or not on the destination so much as the journey. But and what if funny, you are the destination? It's funny because this episode does talk about that. We got a lot of feedback about this episode. Feedback, by the way, you can always send your feedback to Mr. Robot at postshowrecaps.com or postshowrecaps.com slash feedback. We're very thankful for that. Very thankful for all the listeners and subscribers who interact with us on Twitter and provide feedback back that way. I'm at AC Mazzaro. Mike is at a Mike Bloom type and Josh is at round Howard. Uh, and people also just really, they, they give us good reviews. They subscribe on iTunes. That's also really valuable as being part of this larger discussion we've been having about this twist. You can always subscribe. It's postshowrecaps.com slash Mr. Robot iTunes, MR Robot iTunes for our show specific feed or postshowrecaps.com slash iTunes for all of our coverage of the different shows we cover here at post show recaps i mentioned all of that to say that throughout the season we've been getting the feedback not only what you mentioned from people like umberto but also people commenting week to week is this a berenstain bears kind of thing is this an alternate reality am i in an illusion as elliot said in the first episode and so i don't want to take credit for for this theory that's not what i'm here for i have been on board since the jump but i'm not the person who thought of it i will say i i definitely felt like i my own little observation was was proven to be true, and I was very satisfied with that. But Elliot was lying to us that he didn't trust us after what happened at the end of last season, and that it therefore made sense for Elliot to not be showing us the truth. Uh, I like that. I like that even within what we have now established is a fully unreliable narrator who will even lie to us. There are rules set that that lie flowed from a place where we felt already that Elliot felt betrayed by us. We already felt like that. So when this incident occurs, when we realize that Elliot's been lying to us, it makes sense. We knew he was upset with us. We knew that he, we felt like we knew that he felt like we had left him out on the limb and not told him about Mr. Robot or whatever. So I think this is a perfectly natural thing for him to do. I understand the concern that this is a show where you can really get down the robot hole, as we've talked about, and really have to worry that every time Elliot, I stop laughing, Mike. I hear don't, you. Laughing. Don't get, don't, do not get stabbed in the robot hole. Yes, we we want to avoid that at all costs, for sure. No cost is too great to avoid that. But but yeah, this is a show where if you start doing that, if you start questioning every little detail that you're seeing when Elliot is on screen, I can understand the frustration. I, I we're, we are going to talk about what I think the rules are that Elliot is setting for both this interaction and why it occurred with the prison story this way and the rule I think the show is setting in terms of what happened what didn't happen because we had a lot of questions as I said sent to us through all those various forms uh, about this so we're, we're, we're going to get into that we're going to do this a little differently in this episode because it is such a jaw dropper and it is such a game changer in that regard let's just go ahead Mike and talk about the Elliot story in this episode front to back before we go on scene by scene and talk about the other things. Elliot's voiceover picks up and saying, I acknowledge your existence. Let's talk. It's almost the beginning of this conversation that ends with him saying, let's shake on it. 
and he's in the basement with Mr. Robot. He's in the what we I think could now assume is some kind of solitary confinement. Yeah, Would you I'm say assuming, that that's I'm accurate? assuming he's in the shoe at this point. Yeah. Yeah, oh, we're just the new robot, Mike. We're there. We're fully I know. there. Again, that, that's another podcast that I was able to fortunately guest on during a great series of episodes. And, yeah, there was a, now that the prison analogy is out there, I find a lot of comparisons drawn, especially with Ray's role, which I'm, su- I'm sure we're going to be talking about soon. Yeah, we definitely have to get into what role Ray was playing in the prison and what we think about that story. But Elliot's, Elliot's talking in the basement, and he's in his solitary confinement, whether it's the shoe or whether he's in the, uh, what do you want to call it, the water heater room, whatever it is. He's there. He's with Mr. Robot, and he's struggling to breathe on the floor. He's talking about handshakes, the title of the episode. And he's saying it's a, that, that that greeting is just a simple way that people get to know each other. It's not any different than a client connecting with the server. It all relies on that first handshake. Then it grows from there. For most people, me, uh, for most people, and he says, you know, for me, I can't seem to learn the rules. And so, well, yeah, we have a real rule breaker on our hands, obviously. <laughs> uh, Mr. Robot is holding Elliot's hand in this scene. He's not really shaking it. I didn't catch one. Did you ever see an actual handshake between the two of them in this episode? I don't think so. If it did, uh, I'd say Mr. Robot has a pretty lame handshake, pretty limp fish handshake. And speaking towards that voiceover that you just mentioned, it is a little subverting, and it's almost a microcosm for the reveal in the end, in my opinion, is that you're led along, as you said, in the beginning for Elliot to say, you know, it's, it's nice to see you again. He seems to be acknowledging us once again. But no, it turns out that he, I think he's just sort of quoting a conversation you would have while shaking someone's hand. So it's very clear that this is not going to be the first time that Elliot is going to dupe us this episode. This is only the beginning. Yeah, and I, or yeah, exactly. And I should mention, I know we want to stay on the Elliot, the topic of the twist in Elliot and everything as we jump into the show. But his voiceover actually started over Joanna Wellick. Look at an ultrasound of her baby uh, in the open after that after that open so his words have a dual meaning he says hello i see you i recognize you i acknowledge your existence let's talk before we ever see him in the basement so he's not just commenting on the scenes as they're occurring as we see them he also plays the role in the show of a narrator who can provide without necessarily intending to so far as we know at this point provide context or themes that apply to not just the interactions that he's having. So Elliot plays this very interesting role in Mr. Robot, the show, in that he is a meta character. He is sort of a Greek chorus sometimes in the way he comments around things that end up resonating thematically with things that his character would have no notice of. So he's a character in the story, and yet he's also playing the role with his voiceover of a narrator who can have a resonant narration that doesn't just apply to his scenes. And I think this one is certainly doing that, although it seems to be talking about his interactions in general. You're right, not the first time he's being dishonest with us. And dishonesty is really the topic of the day. If you're going to shake with somebody, if you're going to really form a bond with somebody... He's got this issue with Mr. Robot that he can't get past, and he wants to talk to Mr. Robot about Tyrell. And Mr. Robot goes through the story. He says, what's the last thing you remember? Elliot says, I remember the popcorn. Mr. Robot goes on to tell the story of, listen, I had to shoot Tyrell. It was him or us. Tyrell Wellick is dead? Is that is that your read on this, Mike? Tell me tell me where you come in on Mr. Robot coming clean to Elliot that that Elliot shot Mr. Robot, which Elliot accepts. I shot I shot him. I did it. I shot I shot Tyrell, but I did not shoot the Darlinity. Yes. Uh, <laughs> but the interesting thing about this exchange of dialogue to me 
is I'm not personally buying it. Uh, because if we look back at the first scene of season two, which shows Wellick and Elliot at F Society, and that's when we see Elliot reach into the popcorn. We don't exactly know what he's doing there. Maybe he's just grabbing himself a nice buttery, salty treat. This might be filling in some of the blanks there, but at the same time, you have Mr. Robot talking about he was talking about some woman and he was calling us gods. We see none of that in the scene between the two of them, and we assume that in that first scene in season two that Elliot has adopted the Mr. Robot guys. Even Mr. Robot says here, you know, when I made the hack, he did this. So even though we were kind of praising Mr. Robot and Christian Slater last episode for the softening of the character and upon first glance, the uh, into a more sympathetic character overall, he still has the capacity to lie and to protect Elliot. And I feel like this is an example of that. Maybe he's steering Elliot towards this sort of narrative of him trying to become more of a ruthless leader once he ends up leaving prison, and this is sort of the fuel that he needs, when it turns out that that isn't the case at all. If it does turn out that Tyrell is dead... I would feel that's a little anticlimactic. I still would like to go along with our previously stated theory that he is somewhere. I don't believe that Tyrell is dead. I want to say that full stop. I just don't believe that it's the case. We talked about Joanna Wellick looking at a little gift that she's received and how she previously remarked, and we'll get into her scenes uh, momentarily, but she previously remarked about that Tyrell loves to give her gifts, and we see her opening another gift, and she's received several throughout this throughout this season. I don't think Tyrell is dead. I think the phone calls and everything that's a you know i think that tyrell is available is reachable there are some very odd questions that are raised when you look into well if elliot's in a prison are his phone conversations being recorded if so what was the deal with that one with tyrell we should go back and look at what was said in that conversation could anything identify either of them and on and on and on but i don't think he's dead i think it's really telling as you point out that he mentions the stuff about being gods and all these things. But he also asks Elliot, as we noted, what was the last thing you remember? And the last thing that Elliot remembers is the popcorn. Well, everything that Mr. Robot tells Elliot occurs before Elliot reaches into the popcorn. So Mr. Robot is only playing on things that Elliot remembers when he talks about what happened next. He's not going into any detail that we know as an audience that Elliot doesn't necessarily know, even if he was in full-on Mr. Robot while he's executing the hack, even if Elliot doesn't remember that, Elliot's saying, I remember popcorn. So he's very clearly told Mr. Robot where his memory delineates, and reaching into that popcorn is the last thing Elliot remembers as Elliot. Everything Mr. Robot tells him about what Tyrell was saying is before that. So I think Mr. Robot is purposefully playing on what he knows Elliot remembers. I do think Mr. Robot's larger goal is to get Elliot into a place where where he can get refocused. It's interesting because this whole vacillating is Mr. Robot good for Elliot, bad for Elliot. What does he represent debate that we've been having here at post show recaps? I feel like the ball is advanced even more after these conversations. I feel like you're sort of teasing around the edges about that. What do you think? Where do you think we are on that, Mike? Cause I know you've listened to Josh and I talk about it and I know we offered some thoughts last week, but have we moved the ball? Are we in a different, are we in a different organization on the chessboard after this episode with what Mr. Robot, motivations are vis-a-vis Elliot? I would argue that these chess pieces are in the same positions, but Mr. Robot has turned the board around so that we're viewing it from a different angle. I think Elliot says at the end, we're a loose partnership. We're Kimo Sabi's now, bro. I'm, I'm good with him. 
But you could tell in this exchange later when Mr. Robot is really supping Elliot with this, you're a leader. The reason why I reached out, the reason why you reached back to me is because, you know, you wanted to do this. You, you need to be the leader to finish everything off, which we can talk about how that actually correctly, uh, that verifies our master-slave inversion theory that we were talking about last week, both with Mr. Robot and Ray. I did not expect that to pay off in dividends so immediately, but I was happy about that nevertheless. But I do, again, feel like there is some sort of manipulation going on with Mr. Robot, that once Elliot gets out of prison, then because Elliot feels like he can trust Mr. Robot, now Mr. Robot is going to have him pursue the next steps of what he wants to do. I feel like he maybe he gave Elliot a freebie, kind of threw them a bone with the whole Ray thing, and he says, okay, now that you're in my court, we're going to play by my rules. Though I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to convince you that, the, that these are your ideas. You know, it's like part of the 48 laws of power, right? That you never outshine the master. You want to make sure that he believes that his ideas are, you know, you want to make him believe that your ideas are his ideas, essentially. So that they end up getting done. And I feel like Mr. Robot is trying to do that right now by basically supplanting himself to Elliot and saying, you are our leader now. But if you want to take a couple suggestions from me, I'm more than happy to offer them to you. Yep, that's how it read to me, too. I'm I'm actually, in some respects, not coming around fully to the theory that Mr. Robot is this, this pure agent of chaos. But I am, I'm starting to come around that Mr. Robot's motivations may not be the most pure throughout this episode. I think, as you're pointing out, the sort of things that he's got Elliot by the end of the episode believing that they're partners, that they're brilling down, and that everything is fine. But I think throughout, he's manipulating Elliot. And I think that that concerns me just a little bit uh, in terms of what's, al- what's, what's ultimately happening. Um, and so I, I, I have that concern as we, as we go forward, that Mr. Robot... A character that we maybe have said is evolving and that we've seen take care of Elliot in these dark moments. He's even taking punches for Elliot later in this episode. I just think that that his motivations may not be entirely pure at this point. That he represents a part of Elliot that does want to go do bad things. And he knows that he's a smaller part of Elliot. He's not Elliot Prime. Elliot Prime isn't necessarily the guy who throws Terry Colby under the bus, who starts this whole thing in motion he needs a push from mr robot to go over the ledge if you will or to fall off the rail to go really off the rails he needs that push and elliot prime is not like that and mr robot is saying hey the more i can whittle elliot prime into a position where i can manipulate him and make him think that he's leading because when he leads he's really me then i win and exactly I think this is the difficult part for for elliot going forward is he's come to this belief that mr robot is there to look out for him and I'm not sure at the end of this he is. There's a great conversation with Sam Esmail and Alan Sepinwall, which we'll link. Um, I don't know. I haven't been reading what Alan Sepinwall, the critic at Hit Fix, has been saying about this season. Uh, but he has a great back-and-forth conversation that he had with Sam Esmail about this twist and about the idea that Elliot has come to this understanding with Mr. Robot and all the time we've spent over the first half of the season that a lot of people have argued maybe diminishing returns on. And his point was simply that, look, the Mr. Robot thing is a major thing for Elliot. And I'm paraphrasing here. You end the season on that note of him really being concerned about Mr. Robot and he's really had that revelation to deal with. And you throw him in prison. We haven't made clear ultimately why he's in prison. That will become clear, I think, over the rest of this season. But you throw him in prison. How? 
how would he cope? And what's the coping mechanism that a guy who can alter his reality so that he hears Evil Corp every time someone says E Corp, what would his coping mechanism look like? This is a natural one. It's also natural that that guy wouldn't trust us. And so as we're seeing the world through his eyes, it would appear differently. He would lie to us. So it made a lot of natural sense for Sam Esmail to start the season this way, to deal with these things and to approach the twist the way it was approached. I think it makes a lot of sense to me when I look at it that way and when I see how it played out. I think it's actually – it would be a narrative lie if Elliot came back and his head was just cleared at the beginning of season two and that the Mr. Robot thing really didn't affect him. But Elliot is very clearly a damaged, manipulatable guy, and I think that there are parts of even his own personality that understand how to manipulate him without him even knowing it. And it's fascinating. And honestly, yeah, it took us seven episodes to get through – Elliot confronting a lot of that, literal chess games for control of his entire life, uh, psychiatrist visits, everything that Elliot was doing, uh, it, it, still, it still resonates really well to me. And I love that we can't tell almost midway through, or more than midway through season two, exactly what page Mr. Robot's on, what side Mr. Robot's on. I love that about mm-hmm. this twist. I really do. And it, Which makes his statement of, you know, Mr. Robot, I was the one who killed Tyrell, all the more pertinent. He's putting the blood on his own hands voluntarily, whereas the entire first season, Mr. Robot was saying, you know, we're the same person. You did this. I'm a part of you. Mr. Robot is very strategically backing out. He's saying, you're you're winning right now. When it turns out, they are still in that stalemate. But Mr. Robot is trying to give off the illusion of losing. It's almost like a faint attack, if you will, where he's trying to play weak so that he'll probably bring around a sneak attack again once they get out of jail. Then Mr. Robot can really take over over and do what he wants to do with that society. Yeah, I think that that's uh, I think that that's where we're headed and that's uh that's interesting because there are other people that are trying to get their claws into Elliot and there there are these other forces that are introduced in this episode and F society is really doing what may or may not be their own things and this is this has got me wanting actually to get back on a more linear path Mike now that we talk I feel like I'm your <laughs> Mr. Robot. I feel like I'm telling you one you've thing. You conv- you've convinced me to to go back to a scene by scene breakdown. I don't know how, but I think we should do that. <laughs> Well, you know, Mike, you and I, we're basically on the same team. We look out for each other. We watch out for each other. I think it's really important. I think it was important to talk through Elliot's head a little bit. We will get into the way that it, what, what all, it all played out and what was going on with Ray and all of that. But I, I think Elliot is a – it's really – it's really important because I think the larger story of the show, and I could be wrong about this, so and maybe I don't have any credibility on this. Maybe I do. I don't know. But I think the larger story of this show is going to be about some of these sleeping giants, these power players, people like White Rose, people like Philip Price, who have these grander plans in play and that we're going to find out, as we've talked about on this podcast, that other pieces that are on the board that, are, that seem to us to be the prime movers, people like Elliot, people like Angela, people like like Darlene, are really just chess pieces in this bigger game. And I think that when you look at what Elliot's motivation is, where his brain is at, why he's doing the things he's doing, that's an important analysis, not just so we can look into what the episode means or what, whether Elliot is a hero, what path he's on, etc. But I think it's also a really important analysis because all the computer stuff that we've talked about, all the master-slave, all the exploits, all of these things that have been in the show titles and have been the theme of the show show that Elliot is the kind of person who can be manipulated, who can 
be exploited. And depending on where his head is at, may in fact be being manipulated or be being exploited as we speak, as we're watching what happens on the screen. And I think we have to take everything that's happening, not only with Elliot, but also with Angela and Darlene, in that frame. So I think it's really important that Mm -hmm. we analyze their headspace because that frame is a frame that allows them to be the ones that are being exploited even as they think they're the ones that are doing the exploiting. I think that's the larger story of this show. I think that's what's going to play out in the second half of this season and going forward. And I think that's the frame we need to be looking at this show through. That's the lens we need to use. I don't think it's it's coincidental that the first half of this season, nearly all the titles have been some sort of encryption format with files, and it leads to this big twist that Elliot has kind of been encrypting an entire world to us for the entire half season. I mean, this show is all about realities and the illusions or uh, the illusions or the the various lives that we try to leave lead or the screens that we put ourselves around as Elliot will talk about in his final monologue. I know that is Esmail in his interview that you mentioned before mentions that Elliot's time in jail is almost like the empire strikes back that Elliot is in his metaphorical Dagobah system. And he is <laughs> trying to train, I guess with Christian Slater on his back as a very perverted Yoda. Yes. And Mr. I, Mr. Yodbot. I mean, I do like that comparison, though, because I feel like at the beginning of this season, there were a lot of loose threads. It feels like our main characters were kind of scattered to the winds doing a variety of different things. Now it seems like these strings are really starting to become tied together. So I completely agree with you. I think paying attention while these characters like Darlene and Angela and some members of FSI society might be chess pieces in a big game between Evil Corp and White Rose and the Dark Army. I think it's still important to pay attention to them because connections are really being made now. I think there's a very good chance that Elliot is going to be meeting up with DDP in the next couple of episodes, which is pretty magnanimous considering that the two characters have kind of been circling each other for the entire half season. So what makes me One of the reasons why I'm extremely excited for these last five episodes of the season is that to much a polarizing effect, Esmail kind of put these characters on different islands. But now we're sort of continental drift starting to happen, if you will, and we're starting to form one big Pangea-like show where now these characters are going to start inhabiting each other's spaces, and we're going to see what's going to happen as a result. Yeah, and I think that that's that's sort of why it's a... It's, a, it's an interesting thing to talk about each individual storyline, but it, this, the stories are starting to come together. I think you're right. And I think the characters of Angela, Elliot, and Darlene have always been similar in that they were part of this same toxic incident that, that caused damage to all of them. There is debate. We've talked about it a ton with our New Jersey geography experts who have all emailed in about whether DDP will maybe be part of that as well. But the, the long and the short is we know that these three are. We know that the three may all have similar Issues with authority, issues dealing with things. It may manifest in different ways with them, but we know that they all had the same inciting incident and where they are in their path in terms of dealing with it. They're all three at this point focusing on separate threads. But Darlene and Angela already got together last episode. Darlene and Angela had a conversation this episode where it became clear that Angela probably knows that Darlene and Elliot are behind the 5-9 hack. 
And so you can't keep those threads apart for much longer, especially when they're cut from the same cloth. I think there's a very natural coming together that's going to occur between those three. And when you bring those three stories together, then there's a much bigger thing. But the other thing that's in play here, Mike, is that the stories may have always been connected and we just didn't realize it. It isn't just that the threads are starting to get you know pulled out or that we're starting to see the connections. It's that they've always been layered. They're part of a quilt, if you will, that White Rose and the Dark army are building and we had that with leon in prison who apparently has been an agent of white rose the entire time he's not just a guy who has some hot takes on seinfeld mike (laughs) unfortunately not though again we'll talk the long and short of of the prison metaphor later but how ironic that even Leon points it out that they end Seinfeld in prison. That might be the most on-the-nose facet of this twist, I would say, is that if you listen to Leon's Seinfeld musings a few episodes ago, he seems to almost predict it. But again, you know, it's almost as polarizing as the end of Seinfeld. So I feel like they're comparable. Well, yeah, they had a lot of fun. I mean, Sam Asmo had a lot of fun. He talked about the Seinfeld episode that essentially aired backwards. And he did that as as Leon was back talking. There, There's a lot of the Seinfeld references that were picked out maybe tip something off or maybe were connected to a bigger thing. And you talk about nonlinear storytelling, for example, or something that would be rewarding on a second watch with that Seinfeld episode that airs back. Backwards. Uh, Leon is doing that in the middle of something exactly like that, something that maybe would be rewarded with a little nonlinear viewing, and that will be more rewarding the second time you watch it, knowing everything that has gone before. So this show does a really good job of being on the nose about that uh, or, or really hitting that, even if it's not on the nose, just setting that up so that the second time you watch it, it's a, it's a wow moment. Uh, there is a great monologue, by the way, in this episode where Elliot is in the prison chapel and saying he's going to have some alone time with Jesus, seemingly, but he's maybe making an appeal to Mr. Robot. And he says, I need your help. I've been lost these last few weeks since the whole Ray thing. I need to finish what I started with Evil Corp, but I don't know what to do. Is that Elliot's prayer or is that Sam Esmail's prayer about the meta nature (laughs) of the second season and feeling like he needs to bring the threads back together? Yeah, I mean, there is sort of a double-edged sword or double-edged sword of Damocles, if you will, of being the sole voice arguably behind a show i do know that there is an entire production staff and a writer's room that is backing sam Esmail up but at the same time this is sort of his cross to bear it's his vision the entire time and uh, there is another thread that kind of connects to that at the very end when in, in, in elliot's monologue he sort of tells the audience you know i won't lie to you again i promise i know we got a question from dave backer of not only will elliot keep his promise to us but was the promise slash apology at the end of the episode from elliot or sam esmail and i think again one of the things i love about this show are the meetings behind meetings behind meetings almost functioning as realities that exist within this show and part of it definitely could be sam esmail talking through elliot apologizing to his audience if you will of i'm sorry i created that illusion for for you for the past six episodes we're good now though i won't lie to you again though you probably know he's gonna lie to you again oh yeah i feel very strongly that that was intended that way and i love that i really did love that because it is a little bit of a wink and a nod i don't think that this 
I mean, look, you, if you're listening right now and this twist pissed you off so much, it's ruined the show, you hate it, you can't believe it, that's fine. You're entitled to your opinion. For me, I don't think that there's an, an apology necessary. I do think that it's important in Elliot's speech there that he does set some ground rules, that he says, for example, that everything that happened happened. It maybe didn't happen in the way that we saw it, but Elliot dealt with Ray. Elliot got accosted by some dudes that Leon did kill. Uh, Elliot had some issues with, with whatever was going on like these things did happen it they just didn't happen the way that we saw them elliot met with gideon elliot met with darlene do you mean that elliot's not going to try to detonate a bomb to go back in time to try to prevent this stuff from happening no mike whatever happened happened uh, no right? i imagine like angela falling to the bottom of a well don't be a jughead mike Please, let's not do this. <laughs> so, yeah, like, the, whatever happened, happened. Like, that, I like that it, it's setting some rules up because I can understand the frustration if you're watching a show and saying, well, I don't even know if, if Elliot is. And the show has always done a very good job when we had Elliot having cement poured down his throat earlier this season, for example. Uh, Elliot, we, we cut to the scene of Elliot throwing up. So that was more of a metaphor of what Elliot was feeling in that moment. That wasn't a thing where we have to ask ourselves, did Elliot really get cement poured down his throat? Because in the moment, we find out that it didn't happen. Some of these other things, like what happened with Ray, are a lot more unclear. But I think the rule is, yes, that happened. It maybe didn't happen the way that we saw it play out. Maybe Ray's office, if you will, or Ray's house, wherever that was meant to be. Was it just a room in the prison? Maybe Ray's dog wasn't a dog. Maybe Ray's dog was something else. We don't really know exactly how that all played out. We are going to find out. Uh, Sam Esmail has promised. We're going to get answers on what, the, what Ray's job was and how that all set up. But the point of it is that it happened. There's no need to apologize, I think, as long as you're making clear the rules that we have to watch this show under. And I think it's always been clear from the jump that one of the rules is that even though it might seem like the way something's being said or heard happens the way it happens, it may not have happened that way. Elliot may not have been pushed off that railing. The company's name really isn't Evil Corp. Like, we're going to see things sometimes that are different. And it's mm-hmm. it's the person that we're dealing with. We're on board with this show. If you don't <laughs> want to buy into that aspect of the show, and people are already analyzing it frame by frame, and that's fine. The clues are there. It's a rewarding show for people that like taking in shows on that level. But I hope it's still a rewarding show for people that, that don't like taking in shows on that level, or that aren't into the mystery of it all. Uh, I think that it should be. So hopefully we don't have to deal with too much. We didn't get that much negative feedback at all, no. if any, De- much, l- much less than the whole sitcom world within a world. Yeah, and the thing is, look, ratings for Mr. Robot could be a lot better. A lot of people take this in through non-traditional means, if you can believe that, Mike. People aren't all watching USA Network at 10 o'clock on a Wednesday night. But people it's Word watching... Up Wednesday. What else are you watching? People are not tuning in to the Word Up Wednesday block, Mike. They're up all night doing other things. But, yeah, they're, uh, th- this is a show that is consumed very heavily digitally. People are watching it real time. If they buy episodes from Amazon, they're available the next day. Uh, people are pirating the show. Like, this is a show that USA knows the aggregate viewership is a lot higher on. They also know that it's a critically acclaimed show that has won awards and probably will continue to do so. They also know that it's a show they want to continue to work with. They have renewed it for a third season. So even though it's a low-rated show in terms of its initial airings, people really do 
engage with this show. And one of the things that's engaging about the show is that it does reward multiple viewings. And I don't think that that's going to cease. And I wouldn't want the show to not be that show anymore. So I'm personally glad for it. I'm personally glad for a second season that didn't fully rely on this thing. This isn't in episode 11. This is coming out. Uh, This is coming out midway through the season, as you point out. So it's something we can deal with. We now know the rules of the game. Uh, When we're seeing a sitcom, if that didn't make it abundantly clear that this was a guy who could create an entire reality that we would see and feel differently about, uh, then we know that now going forward. That Elliot, when when he's not trusting us, we might not be seeing something that's totally accurate. And uh, I, and, uh, I, I was, was going to say, I wonder if it's the, the difference in temperament between the first season and the second season as well. I know it only recently got renewed for a third season, but you have to wonder, I believe Sam Esmail made the first season not thinking there was going to be a second one. So while he did leave some cliffhangers at the end of season one, episode 10, I think he pretty much made the 10-hour movie that he wanted to make initially. Now that he has season two, he might have a bigger budget. He's now the head honcho. He has all control of everything, which also I think speaks well towards the first half of the season as well. Speaking back towards the twist, I think Esmail becoming the sole benefactor of directing and writing makes sense because I don't think he would want to trust a myriad of directors and writers with this reality of Elliot. He wanted to make sure that the verisimilitude was there, that there is consistency between the world from episode to episode. Otherwise, it would get more confusing. But with this sort of guarantee that the network likes you and people seem to like you, I feel like Esmail could play a little more fast and loose. Maybe he feels like he doesn't need to necessarily please people to hook them in from the beginning. He's sort of relying on the fact that there is a very strong, fan base so now let me experiment with things a little bit more and i love it because as a fan of the aforementioned community i love whenever television directors step outside of the regular boundaries of what television can constitute and really create art and i do feel like mr robot is one of the most artistically creative shows out there that as we talked about last week is genre bending is reality bending which is crazy that makes you as paranoid as the main character going online with thousands and thousands of other internet commenters trying to microanalyze every single symbol from every single scene which i love doing in my daily life though as you said i don't know if that's necessarily for everyone this show is just i wouldn't call it important but it's just so meaningful in what it really does as as a creative piece and how it really the golden age of tv has caused the television product to really step outside what constituted it in the past 20 years but this is really breaking these boundaries wide open it's blowing up that cell door and it's a, it's a metaphorical jailbreak of creativity if you will yeah, and I mean, that's my favorite thing about Mr. Robot, is I feel like it really is ahead of its time. It's it's of and, and like many things that have come before, I think Sam Esmail does a fantastic job of paying homage to great works in cinema and TV without totally ruining the show by making it just directly derivative of those things. I think he reinterprets and reimagines in a beautiful way um, that is sometimes impressionistic. It's sometimes uh, directly on point. It's just he, he paints with many 
many brushes. He does so well with all of them. This season has really benefited from having him visually as a director of all of these episodes. I think especially for these first episodes in the jail, it was super important to set up a visual aesthetic that you could play with and you could see was the world that it was created and that was the way it was. Because it was a world that was all created in Elliot's head, I think it was very important that all those episodes, especially in those scenes, look very similarly, be shot very similarly, encounter and encourage characters the, the in very similar ways. So I think that this is a I think this is all very good. I'm very satisfied with this twist. I my, my, my jaw was on the ground even though I knew it was coming, Mike. And that's something that I, I think is is real a tribute to how this show executed its its real big you know middle act trick here in the in the in the process of season two. And I, we're gonna get into the scenes of it. We we should talk about what how this episode opens because you talk about beautiful art and the way something an artistic choice that is made joanna wellick's silent scream over that title card mike is chilling absolutely and it is an interesting focus on the wellicks i mean the cold opens this season specifically have really ran the gamut we had a flashback with darlene and elliot last week obviously we had the sitcom as we talked about before the season opens with assumingly what happens in that gap of time of a couple days that existed between you know, in the middle of season one, episode 10, we're not exactly sure where this falls into the timeline. I may be incorrect in that I didn't know if we knew that the Wellicks and the Knowleses knew each other beforehand. If so, that makes that sort of uh, fills your idea of going back to rewatch season one again to really dive into their interactions, knowing that they have met before. I mean, an all-white party is also obviously very symbolic in that it represents sort of a form of purity, if you will, of innocence, even though these careful, are far... Careful, Mike. <laughs> that these are far from innocent people. Uh, and then, of course, jump cut to the modern day when Joanna Wellick first is wearing white, which is also a little problematic considering that she seems to be out of mourning. She's no longer wearing the dark colors and mourning the possible loss of her husband. But her innocence is shattered by a splash of red when a woman comes by, assumingly uh, whether she's a protester or sort of an F Society fringe member, we're not entirely sure, but she gets doused in red in that silent scream, as you mentioned. It's haunting, but it's so stifling at the same time. And maybe... And maybe it's like a larger, maybe it's a larger allegory for Joanna Wellick that this season we've seen her pull off some power moves, but maybe she still is restrained and not in the good way at the same time where, you know, at the end of the day, while she's getting pictures taken, she's more so seen, but not heard. We see her in these tabloids. We see her making these moves, but nobody's really leaning on her for anything. And she's also very helpless in that there seems to be someone who has her husband that is reaching out to her and she really can't do anything about it. She feels as helpless as the screaming individual on the sidewalk. Yeah. Uh, except I'm not sure. She feels helpless in that moment. Like, I think you're right that she does maybe feel as helpless as the screaming individual on the sidewalk. But I suspect, and I can't, I can't confirm this, but some of the things that happened in this episode made me really wonder 
if there isn't more going on with Joanna Wellick, then we really see. I think you're right to draw the distinction about the all-white party that she and Tyrell are attending in a flashback at the beginning because the episode opens with this sweeping music. I believe it's from a Brian De Palma film. Is that right, Mike? Yeah, Blown Out, I think it's called. Blown Out, which is in and of itself a tribute or ripoff of Blow Up. Brian De Palma, a noted ripoff artist, if you want my opinion on the subject. Uh, but maybe a lot of what Brian De Palma does best is homage. Uh, his number one target of his homage is Hitchcock, typically. But blow up or blow out is a is a is a take on blow up, which is uh, Antonioni film from the 1960s that has been parodied in things like Austin Powers and that was uh, riffed on in Stranger Things recently on Netflix. It's about a mod photographer in London who is just doing some photographing in a park and maybe photographs a dead body and isn't sure if he photographed evidence of a murder or not and. It's really a more surreal film than that. Uh, there's a lot going on. It's much more about the, the hours and the times that are playing in England and in London in that time period. But that's the general premise. And so it's, this is Brian De Palma's music from a movie playing on that premise that is playing in the background of this. I, I don't know if there's subtext to be read into the, the John Travolta movie that Brian De Palma made, the blow-up movie with Michelangelo and Tony Oni's, uh directorial credit there. I don't know if there is subtext to what's going on with Joanna Wellick, but I'll tell you in this scene, we open with her and Tyrell. Tyrell has given her these new earrings. We follow the earrings to a party that they're attending where they meet Sharon Knowles for the first time, where they meet Scott Knowles for the first time, where Philip Price introduces Sharon Knowles as his, quote, silent partner in crime. And we don't really know what's going on at that party, except Joanna says Tyrell likes to give me little gifts sometimes. We know she's been receiving these gifts throughout the season. When we cut back to present day, we see Joanna Wellick standing in the same room she was standing in in the all-white everything scene, except it's dark in this scene. It's night. She is inside the place. This is... This is the, the, the same kind of themes that are echoing on the piano that's playing from the sweeping music. Uh, but we, she's back in that room. And that is, that is after the blood has been thrown on her, after this horrible thing has happened. She has a little gift there. It's an ultrasound picture. Mike, do you think this is a picture of her current child, her child that she had to let go? Or this is wrapped up as a gift. Is this a new baby? What do you, what do you make of this ultrasound picture? Is this just something else Tyrell has sent her? I thought it was just a throwback Thursday. TBT? Yeah, TBT. Like, hey, remember your baby? Hope you're doing well. Love you. Bye. Yeah, it holds an interesting connotation to it because I do want to connect it back to the other gifts that she is receiving, which, again, are all seemingly connected to this child between the music box and the rattle. It's a big question mark as to who exactly is behind sending these gifts. And if they're sending them, are they out of goodwill or are they serving as a threat to Joanna of we're coming after your childhood, your child next? And if they are threats, what is Joanna doing with them? She's utilizing them and is not really, I don't know, weaponizing them. I don't know how much you can weaponize a rattle uh, unless you make a shank out of it. Going back to the prison metaphor, uh, how much you can weaponize <laughs> your them. Your world is, is very dark place, Mike. Yeah, well, I've been existing in that corner for a long time. I've been in that. I've been in that basement, that metaphorical shoe, for too long. Stabbing people with baby rattles. Go on. Uh, but I feel like if they are threats from an outside organization to her, she's not really heeding their warning in a way. And maybe if it is alluding to a future child, or if it's revealing a, a past secret, a skeleton that she has in her closet of a child that she got rid of previously. 
this complicates that relationship a little more. And again, it's hard to really say anything because we don't know who is sending these gifts. But either way, I feel like the relationship has become a little more complicated with not only just sending gifts, but seemingly going into whatever medical records she had and pulling out these ultrasounds. Yeah, I, I don't know exactly who's doing that. Somebody with some computer skills, maybe. I wonder who that would be. But she she does say Tyrell's always giving me little gifts. So the implication, I do think, is that it's Tyrell giving these gifts. And they have to do with the baby that they have together. Part of the reason I wanted to jump around in this episode is the threads are there. But I think they're so just starting to poke out that it's easy to lose sight of them. Later on in this episode, for example, Joanna's main drama within the course of this episode is domestic drama with her new boyfriend. And we first see him choking her, and she's saying, harder, harder, harder. And we know that she has some sexual proclivities, and this is one of them, and that's fine. Uh, We see that he's upset that she won't acknowledge their relationship publicly. That culminates with her visiting his apartment, looking at his horrible cocktail poster on the wall and ultimately saying look i'm sorry i didn't come celebrate your birthday but i was working really hard on your birthday gift it's divorce papers that i'm going to serve my husband tyrell wellick and then you remember as the echoed from the previously on is that she told tyrell before season one ended when the baby was born when they're sitting in bed with the baby that she didn't want to be married to him anymore this was before the end of season one before he was fbi's most wanted number one with regard to the five nine hack she already wanted to be free of tyrell the other weird little tidbit we get from derek the boyfriend is that he met her at an evil court party mm-hmm. certainly this wouldn't have been a party she attended after the five nine hacks so this relationship predates her giving birth to this baby is that right and could there be a possibility that this baby is not tyrell's and again if so does that put a menacing smirk on this ultrasound saying you know this child isn't yours that's your secret to bear and by the way i have to wish a a belated happy birthday to derek as well i didn't know that i have a similar (sighs) birthday as both derek and philip price that's a hell of an entertainment week uh, entertainment tonight shout out Holla, Derek. Yeah, so that's actually absolutely what uh, giving him giving him a shout out for his birthday. But yeah, he's turning thirty. He's very upset. Joanna's not there, but he lets slip that they met at an evil court party, and it couldn't have been a party after five nine. It couldn't have really been a party right around five nine because the Wellicks were out. So I don't know when that party was. Was it the same party where we saw the Wellicks earlier with Philip Price introducing Sharon Knowles as his silent partner in crime? Was it the party where Sharon Knowles got murdered? Is is this, I mean, is it possible that Joanna Wellick is developing, is this her end game with Derek? Is she developing a patsy for that murder? I mean, if she did, the breadcrumbs are leaning there because she got him, she got his prints on the syringe slash gun that killed that parking attendant. And if and things end up coming to her, she sort of almost insulated him, herself with this 30-year-old meat shield to say, oh, yeah, this is, the, this is my manservant who did it for me. And in filing these divorce papers, there definitely is some manipulation going on there. Is that – reset that. Is that true? How do, what, what went on with the prints? I'm forgetting that. I mean, I don't think there really are 
Prince Prince, but, you know, if there were witnesses, they're not saying Joanna Wellick walked into that guy's apartment building and killed him. They're going to say a man walked in and killed him. And so the fingers will be pointing at him, not necessarily her. So she kind of has him in his pocket, and she has for a long time. There is a question as to whether her feelings towards him are genuine or whether she's just utilizing him for her own nefarious purposes. But I think that the divorce papers are a clear power move from her point of view of saying, just like Mr. Robot with Elliot, I'm all yours. You can trust me when really she's in the power position and she's providing the illusion of powerlessness. Yeah, it's 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 weird. A lot of people on Reddit or some people on Reddit, I'm not even sure if it's more than one user, but I did read a comment that Derek chokes Joanna and she's she's saying, you know, harder, harder, harder. Is it a coincidence that Sharon Knowles was choked? Is this something where she can develop some kind of alibi that, that it, for Tyrell that involves Derek being the one who did it. We know the cameras were out. We don't know what evidence there is pointing Tyrell to that. He he you know he may have wiped his fingerprints off of Joanna, but he's the one who had the motive. But maybe we can find another motive. Maybe we can get Derek on the slab for that. I don't know that I, – I think we're on the same page in that we don't think that what's happening with Joanna is just a surface thing. Like, as you're saying, like with Mr. Robot, there's a, there's an end game here. There's something deeper going on with her and Derek. She's not just saying, I love you, and I'm she's, – she's way too warped and manipulative uh, to just be behaving on the surface with Derek. Are we on the same page about that? Yeah, absolutely, which, again, I feel like we are <laughs> – D- D- Chekhov's Derek, Derekov, should we call it? I think this relationship is going to pay off near the end of the season when we are going to get an answer about Tyrell. I feel like a definitive answer about Tyrell. And I feel like Joanna and the web she's been spinning for Derek is going to combine with that storyline and sort of butt heads. Well, I mean, we, I only bring this up because there are some people that have asked us that maybe Joanna is in the Dark Army. Like maybe she has got some kind of allegiance that's deeper than her looking out for herself. Maybe she's committed to a cause. There have been the questions about who her first child was that she talks about giving away. Is this a character that we'll see on the show? It would have to be a pretty young character. So if we, if we are going to see that person on the show, I don't think we've met them yet. But there are a lot of question marks about Joanna Wellick. I'll point back to the murder scene that you're talking about where she gave very specific instructions to her muscle how to play that out Uh, he wore a hat in there he wanted to frame it up so it might look like some other guy in her building you're right the only witness would say guy with dark hair you know if they saw the dark hair uh, maybe with a hat on uh, came in and out of the building Um, maybe that's something she could point at Derek there are a lot of these things where she has a contingency or she has an out she has a plan a bigger plan in place than what we've seen we find out that kareem the parking attendant is dead after we're not been 100 percent sure that joanna has ordered it we just find out while she is singing to her child while she's rocking her child back and forth and basically saying look if you murder someone without them knowing why that's when you're really a monster and so this is a woman who compartmentalizes murder mike someone who compartmentalizes murder for a greater gain or is able to wash their hands of it like that 
Who knows what her ultimate plan is? I think it's safe to say this is her ultimate plan does not involve falling in love with Derek and then going off to the beach somewhere uh, or just traipsing around whatever, wherever, doing whatever. That's not her plan. So she's well, got yeah. something bigger in mind. If, if, he, she's, if she's going in for a, a Labor Day beach party, she'll have to learn not to wear white. Yeah, this is, yeah, exactly. We're out on the all white. That's good. I'm finally glad we got you back on the right team, Mike. But yeah, uh, this is this. She's got a bigger plan. There's no question about it in my mind. It's not 100% clear what the plan is. But Joanna has a bigger plan, and Derek is just a pawn in that game. And again, you have to read Joanna on this map of exploits, of people that are exploiting the master, the slave. And the master-slave dynamic with Joanna, of course, has different connotations as well. So it's a really interesting, fascinating, deep character. Steph Cornelison is doing an unbelievable job playing the various shades of this character. And I think it's clear something big's brewing with Joanna. I don't know how it's going to connect to our meta story or a bigger story. Even if she gets Tyrell off the hook for Sharon Knowles' murder and puts Derek on the slab for that one, I don't think that she can get Tyrell out of the 5-9 hack with Derek. I don't think she's that far down the road with her planning. So I don't really know where that goes. But I I do think – yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, I, I would not be surprised if, of all the characters at the end of this season, Joanna's plotline is the most tangential. Because I agree, unless some cock duty thing happens, like Joanna being a part of the Dark Army, she really is not that connected to what's going on in the main storyline, especially with Tyrell being so MIA. And I personally don't see the, the Dark Army theory coming into existence, though, again, this could be something retroactively where I'm surprised and then I sort of understand the footprints that were leading us to this eventual beach for our non-white Labor Day party later on. But that being said, I wouldn't necessarily be mad at it. I don't know if I would call it padding, but Joanna Wellick and the performance, as you just mentioned, is so captivating that... I'm totally fine subscribing to her for a few minutes every episode, even though it's not exactly related to what's going on right now. Yeah, she says, I would be lost without you. That's the key takeaway for me is because that sentence can have multiple different meanings. And the question is, what path is she on that she doesn't need to be lost for? What is her ultimate guidance? And where is Derek in terms of providing an out on that? But there is a, there is a bigger plan in play. It, it, it may not be that she's Dark Army, but uh, she and Elliot maybe even knew each other. Flashing back to that conversation that they had when she said, if you've done something to him, I'll kill you. Uh, she she and Elliot did know each other, and she was, for whatever reason, paying Kareem and then killing him to cover up the Elliot connection to the 5-9-9. And so maybe there is something with the White Rose in play. Now that we've seen White Rose has agents like Leon floating around out there and watching Elliot's back. It's entirely possible that Joanna Wellick is involved in that as well. The reason I think it's entirely possible and it's not as cock as you put it, I think, uh, is that, which is a great word, by the way, Mike, uh, shout out to uh, borrowing from my grandma's vocabulary. Um, or, or Annie Wilkes. Or Annie Wilkes. Either way. But yeah, what I would say is what I think is great about this is we've talked a ton on this podcast about that larger story, about the larger battle that's going on. And if you look at it in, 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 in a frame of reference that involves 
Elliot being manipulated by White Rose, being exploited, being a target of the exploit that, that he could use, being a pawn in their game, knowing what his story was and knowing what his skills were, being a very specific person that they wanted to use and, and, and be involved. And Tyrell also played a part in that. Uh, then I think that you could say Joanna Wellick being part of that larger story actually makes sense and is exciting. So there are some great possibilities here with Joanna Wellick. I think we have to just wait and see exactly how they play out. But I think the threads in this one are very exciting for me. And I think when you connect the threads, like when you look at Joanna Wellick and her talking to Derek and all of her actions in the same kind of episode where Leon is revealed to be a secret agent for the Dark Army, I think it's fascinating as to where Joanna's story can go. I think you say the same thing, though, about Angela. I think that Angela's story, as we're talked about how she is part of that same inciting incident and all of that, she has her own goals in play in this episode very clearly. Her goal is to get into the risk, manage department, risk management department seemingly so that she can get at the files about Washington Township. Mm. I don't know what she's going to do with their internal files, Mike, but this seems to be her plan. Are you reading that? I'm reading this as a big old defensive maneuver. The way that I'm looking into it is that after we pick right up where we left off last episode amidst Guan playing in the background of DDP seeing Angela at her desk and her basically telling Angela, like, I'm onto you and I'm into you in a way where she's essentially saying, like, I know about you and I know that you're kind of a person of interest in this entire hack. I think Angela is now entirely trying to figure out an escape for her to escape the FBI's eye, which is tough, and the F and the B as well, not just the I. And so I think <laughs> there might be more of a, of a meta game here where if she goes to Philip Price, and she even admits to him, it's a lateral move, but I want to go to risk management. When we go to this meeting later with the shrimp cocktail-laden meeting – where she is very brazen. You know, she's very brazen with her risk management boss. She's she's a little rude, to be honest, in, in what she does with the meeting, and specifically bringing up Washington Township. One might argue, okay, that's Angela just not being the smooth criminal as shown with her tact with Agent Ross Thomas last episode. But I'd like to think that there's a larger game here at play where – if the FBI comes sniffing around her, which they are, DDP says, go check Angela Moss's desk, even though there probably isn't going to be anything there. If they track her actions, they might see, oh, Angela wasn't hacking the FBI. Angela had a motive to try to check out what was going on with the Washington Township stuff because she has a personal connection to it. And so they're going to say, Angela doesn't see the forest for the trees. She's clearly concentrated on one thing rather than the larger FBI hack in general. So I would put a lot of stock in Angela here, and I would take her actions this episode as a larger plan to shake the feds from herself personally so that... She can go on and do whatever she can without worrying about DDP huffing and puffing over her shoulder. Interesting. I like that read. I like that read. We did start the first Angela scene picks up uh, in the middle of things, right where the last episode left off, actually. Uh, so in the middle of things for this episode, but where the last episode left off in that DDP is standing at her desk, hovering over her. She still has Darlene on the line. She has not finished updating the Wi-Fi such that Darlene can complete the FBI hack. DDP does grill her a little bit. Why are you on that floor? Angela answers the question. But DDP gives her the Larry David almost. She kind of looks her up and down and really sizes her up and says, uh, great line. Like, whatever this is, it's not you. <laughs> 
which will which will not be the last time she'll hear it. There'll probably be the uh, the person who's least uh, the most distance away from her family that will say that to her this episode. Fair point. Yeah, fair point. But yeah, she is looking at that Angela and saying what viewers are saying, like what we've said throughout, what a lot of people have provided a little negative critique on, which is that Angela at E-Corp doesn't make sense. And I think that this is us reading this. If Mr. Robot were a novel, it's reading one chapter and being like, I don't get it. It doesn't make sense. It's not a good fit. The story's not over, folks. Like, we're not 100% sure where Angela is going to end up, but she very clearly is operating under her own rules, and she's using this greater plan that she has, whatever it is, as a motivating factor in a lot of the decisions that she's making, you're saying that maybe part of her smaller great plan or, or a larger part of her plan or a key part of it is covering up her involvement with the hack at all safe. And she can do that by making it seem like she has a more obvious motive of mm-hmm. her working at E-Corp. Fair play. I get that. That may well be the case. She does want access to that file. It's not whether it's not clear whether this is as a result of just her being a blunt tool and not doing a good job of going about it, uh, or if this was her meaning to be called out, her meaning to be at odds with her boss for whatever reason. We don't know that from this episode. So I don't know if we can read that scene as strictly a mistake by Angela or as a mistake that's part of a grander plan, but she's as seem to be after those Washington Township files. And I think it's a I think it's a really interesting conversation. We we have the greater story between White Rose and Philip Price, which I keep pivoting back to, but I, I think a lot of people are losing the threads of that story as we focus so much on the prison. But well, if, if Marvel movies are any indication, post-credit scenes are extremely important. Yes, so we have the post-credit scene from season one that set that up. Then we have the passing scene where Philip Price and White Rose are on the phone together when White Rose has first discovered that the FBI is surveilling people related to the 5-9 hack. And White Rose is saying, Philip Price has some strategy relying on a woman that's going to take about six months, and I don't want to wait that long, so let's set up our own strategy. And we have we haven't seen 100%. It's not clear what actions are related to White Rose setting up that strategy. What is the war at stake here? One of the first Angela scenes we see after the DDP scene, Angela's in a cab. And on the cab, the news broadcast is talking about. Do you remember what the news broadcast yeah. was talking about, Mike? Yeah. So there, this the, I find this extremely important. And I am totally following the line that you're providing here. They're talking about eCoin, and they're saying how they are trying to push out a new commerce method, which seems to be entirely through Evil Corp. And this goes back to what we were even talking about last week, as we've talked about many times, the possible end game that the Dark Army is trying to accomplish here. This e-coin could be a possibility that if you get control of e-coin, essentially you're taking control of the country's economy. So maybe this is another move by the Dark Army to get the country at large onto e-coin so that they can swoop in, whether it be through hackers or through other means, to essentially take over e-coin, then the ball's in their court. Yeah, and uh, without getting too far down the Bitcoin hole, because you joked about it last episode, if Mr. Robot has to explain Bitcoin to everybody, like, we're in real trouble, and I agree with you 100%. But I think you're right that the little voiceover that's in the cab that's playing there is a very key element of the larger story between the Dark Army and China and, and Evil Corp, is that... The U.S. dollar, the cash dollar, is the, is the currency standard, really, for the world. 
And if you want to replace that currency with something else, and let's call it a Bitcoin, let's call it an e-coin, whatever it is, then you not only control the U.S. economy, you control the world economy. And that is a huge deal. The issue with Bitcoin, Bitcoin can be mined and farmed through computers and transactions where you get, you know, you're using half a Bitcoin here and you're going a quarter there and, you know, you're getting a better exchange rate on this day and you're eventually making, you're, you're eventually making e-money appear out of nowhere just through series of trades. It's also used on websites like the one that Ray was running. E-coin or Bitcoin is mentioned several times in passing throughout this episode. I don't think that's on accident. I do think that this is a big part of the larger story between Philip Price and White Rose. They're fighting essentially the 5-9 hack was at least by the Dark Army's design on purpose and the larger purpose of the 5-9 hack was to collapse the U.S. economy so that a vacuum formed and that vacuum sucked into it this new currency standard that they can control or that they're in better control of or that puts them in an even more powerful position than they were before they owned everyone's debt. So I do think that that seems to be the larger story that's brewing. I think that Angela is probably a pawn in that game, but maybe she is not a pawn. Maybe she's a pawn who can turn into a queen, Mike. Like maybe she is a character who has a bigger plan in play. Let's talk about that scene with her and Philip Price. What was your read on that scene when she goes into Philip Price and basically says, look, lawsuit is settled. It's done. What I want is I want to work in risk management. And Philip Price is saying, like, hey, you're going to squander all your capital on that job? And then he sort of makes a pass at her and she turns yeah. it down. Who's really in control in that scene in that moment? Philip Price is, to me, the one question mark in terms of character that is left. I know we have questioned the motivations of characters even on this this podcast the past you know hour or so but philip price for me i just cannot get a good grasp on him and maybe that's on purpose because yeah him making a pass at her seemed like a power play but even she admits at the beginning of the scene that when she confronted him a few episodes ago about what he was using her for he vehemently denied it but she knew that that was kind of reverse psychology to have her drop the contingencies which she does in a scene with her father that i'm sure we can talk about as well their relationship is something that i'm really still trying to wrap my head around because, I mean, Philip Price making a pass at Angela saying, sleep with me on my birthday. You'll be my Marilyn. I'll be JFK, if you will. Uh, do you think that there was anything romantically, just like Derek and Joanna, is there anything romantically involved in that? Or do you think this is just a carnal representation of the way Price is utilizing Angela right now? I think there's a carnal representation there. The question is, and I think you're hitting on it, it it's just whether Philip Price knows that Angela's going to say no in that moment and feel that she has power over him and thus feel like she's in control of a relationship she's actually a pawn in, she's actually not in control of. And I think you're right. I think his motivations are the biggest question mark for me. And I don't know whether that scene was just a carnal, that, that ask was a carnal thing or if it was meant to be a, a greater 
psychological strategy? Is Philip Price slowly seen over seen week over week, month over month? Is he with Terry Colby socially engineering Angela? Is he hacking Angela? Is he exploiting Angela? Angela wanted to feel valued. She tells her dad in that scene, they really value me over there. Angela wanted to feel important. She likes power. All these things that are probably negative aspects of her character that bloom. Sorry about the, uh, the word there, Mike, as a result of her being involved in the Washington township stuff with her mom, all of the issues that she may have that are serviced by this self-help. I am valuable. I am smart. I'm actualized kind of personality. She's developing. They all could come from that same incident, but they all make her somebody who can be exploited. Mm-hmm. And if you look at Elliot and Angela and say, or at Elliot and Angela and Darlene and say, they're all being exploited by these other players. They're not actually the masters. They're the slaves. I think that Angela's exploits there in this scene with Philip Price read a lot differently. Differently. If you if you read this under a lens where Philip Price, the episode, the last interaction where he basically doesn't tell her that he wants the contingency drop, that as you call it, the reverse psychology, it's entirely possible that he asks her knowing that she'll say no and knowing that saying no will make her feel powerful and make her feel good and make her feel validated in the decisions that she's making because he has a greater purpose in play for her that she hasn't yet fulfilled. Although dropping the contingency may be the greatest purpose because the guy in the risk management department does say Philip Price said the guy could treat Angela however he wanted. So maybe Philip Price is done with her. Yeah. And you spoke about the bloom that might come from this incident, but the bloom might have fallen off the rose at this point. I found the scene between her and her dad pretty heartbreaking, especially if you compare it to her arc last season when he invited her into his home after her life kind of fell apart and she was kind of taking care of him as well. And she observed the huge amount of debt that he was in to have him almost... I don't. I wouldn't say you know swear off his daughter, but tell her to her face. I don't know who this person is in front of me. I don't trust you. I mean, those are heartbreaking things to say. And the emblematic part of that scene as well is the New York One reports that any sort of talk about the bailout it was stalled. I'm assuming once by the Chinese hack. They try it again. Now balls are literally dropping from the ceiling. It's like a Big Brother challenge. Teabagging uh, Congress, Mike. And a John Boehner sighting. We were correct in our Boehner yes. prediction last week. Yes. That's Teabagging Boehner. In all his orange glory. Uh, but considering that that Angela's dad is working in a section of a Walmart analog, which has hun- a big screen of TVs just playing that, a la 40-year-old virgin of Michael McDonald, if you will, to have that playing in the background is almost similar to when Angela is talking to her risk management boss for the first time, and you, this, the scene is scored by the sounds of protesters shouting. It appears to Angela that when she first talks to DDP in this episode, I don't know if you noticed, but from the cinematography standpoint, the camera just keeps focusing on her and pushing in on her. And I feel like with Angela, the cinematographer is trying to get across these very claustrophobic shots, that it's very representative of the world that she has tried to enter is closing in around her. And so I don't think it's coincidental that when Angela is really trying to further herself in these scenes by talking to her dad and really saying, I'm not visiting you because I'm your daughter, I'm visiting you as a courtesy. This is purely business, nothing personal. And then her talking with her boss later on, to have the soundtrack to this 
seen being these moments of chaos from the 5-9 hack is really a reminder to Angela of what the world outside is like and how it's really starting to seep into her current affairs. Yeah, that I I hadn't necessarily read that. And I think that I I took her turning her back on the protesters to just be that she's trying to block it all out. But you're right. It is seeping in. She's also the person as she's driving in that cab that is witnessing the cottage industry of curbside garbage. Yeah, burning. literal dumpster fires going on. Yes, literal dumpster fires going on. We're seeing it through Angela's eyes as Garbage Man by the Cramps plays. Like we are seeing that through her eyes. And she's having to make a lot of cold-blooded choices. Last episode, it was saying, I don't know who your friend is. I thought I recognized him when Cisco walked in. The man who really bought and sold the world with regard to her. The man who changed everything about her life walks into the room and she just doesn't say anything. She doesn't confront the issue, and it's not dealt with. She tells her father, I'm just coming here as a courtesy. And he says, who are you? I don't know you. A lot of what I'm reading with Angela reads to me like an undercover agent who's forced to do things that they don't really want to do, but they feel like because they're in deep cover, they have to do them. And that might include seeing a family member and acting like a real jerk or acting like they don't know them. Or she may have some bigger thing in play that she's actually creating a facade not for her own sanity which is where the read of the the outside protests coming in would would really break those walls down but she's creating a facade for a bigger purpose and her bigger purpose may not be personal growth she may actually have a grand plan that does involve her going taking terry colby's offer working with philip price doing some very horrible things including in fact settling the lawsuit and selling her dad up the river and really making him disown her so that she can have a greater success later. My read on that is when Terry Colby tells her, that lawsuit was already paid for. We set up a contingency fund for that lawsuit when the issue occurred. It's already made five times the amount we're going to pay out. Like, Angela saw this as fait accompli. Like, look, the, the money's already sunk for this lawsuit. We win, we lose. It's not a big deal. It's not going to be a big deal to them. It's, it's going to be a slap on a wrist that they're already prepared to take. So I think in that moment, she's not going to Evil Corp to get the money for the people in the lawsuit. She's going to Evil Corp to do what Terry Colby says, which is change it from the inside. I think she has a bigger plan. I do think it involves those Washington Township files. My concern about this is that her plan, such as it is, whatever it is, is recognizable enough that she would do that, that that's what Philip Price wanted all along. That's mm-hmm. why his plan was going to take six months because it involved Angela doing X, doing Y, doing Z, then maneuvering her into a place on a board where he could use her later. If you read the whole thing as a chess match between White Rose and Philip Price and you read Angela as the she that White Rose was saying it would take too long, I don't think Philip Price has a problem with her being in risk management. I think he expected it. I think he expected the thing with the contingency, with his reverse psychology. I think he's totally controlling Angela still. And I don't know what her bigger plan is, but by the time it's revealed, it wouldn't be surprising to me to see the rug pulled out from under it and to see it be what Philip Price wanted all along. 
that's where I'm at with Angela. I honestly think like Philip Price is going to, metaphorically speaking, turn a mirror on Angela and say, look who you've become. I feel like he's kind of giving her his own bastardized version of a makeover and turning her into an entirely different person. I mean, there has to be significance in the fact that Angela parrots those aforementioned Terry Colby words to Philip Price. And Philip Price does nary but bat an eyelash at it and say, okay, you can work in risk management. It's also interesting trying to figure out what Angela's next steps are here, considering that her boss seems to be... I don't know if I use the term on to her, but he tells her, you know, I know the path that you took here, and... Philip Price said, I can do whatever I want to, and hopefully that does not lead to its own carnal implications later on. But I feel like Angela's felt, if I'm going along with my theory of her trying to shake the FBI, okay, I'm out of the woods now, but I've kind of stumbled into a raging river of this man. Now, how am I going to deal with him? Yeah, and I don't know if if bringing up his birthday was a part of building some bond that would hide that or that would obfuscate his greater purpose or what the deal with that is. I think that's a scene that we'll we'll, want to revisit in several episodes, hopefully, when this season's answers become a lot more clear because you're right, that could be – him recognizing something about her, it's not really holding a mirror in that moment, but I think it could be that he's asking her. If you'll recall, earlier in the season when he wanted something from her, he did proposition her as though he was taking her out. She was a little swept up by that, and then when she showed up, there were two other dudes there, Mike, and that wasn't exactly – so. it was almost a record scratch that played in the background of that scene. It was so shocking for her. So he's been playing these games with her throughout. I'm not sure if his end game is to protect himself as you're saying, uh, if he ever does set the mirror on her, I don't know 100% what his goal are, is, but it's fascinating. And it's really, it's really compelling to see how it's playing out with Angela. The only other big Angela scene from this episode we haven't talked about beat by beat is when she meets with Darlene mm-hmm. in front of Angela's apartment. Darlene is waiting there because after the, the Wi-Fi hack has gone down, apparently Angela has not returned Darlene's calls. Darlene's a little concerned. And Angela is... is taken the cab home. She's seen the dumpster fires, heard about the the Bitcoin, the e-coin. She pulls up to her apartment and Darlene is waiting there. And I, you know, Darlene is, is, is coming. She's coming clean about the Cisco thing, right? Yeah. So we had a big question mark at the end of the last episode about what was Darlene's knowledge of this incident? Is she going to reveal it? And I think the big question we had with Angela's involvement with F Society in general was it seemed like they were getting on her nerves a bit by the end of that entire action-like hack scene. Is she going to still continue to work with them, or is a chance she could sell them down the river? And it's clear from this scene that this relationship is a little strained, and Angela's going to come clean about her thoughts about Darlene and Elliot, the Aldersons, even as children. And Caleb from Atlanta asked a question that I feel like ties into it. He says, Angela clearly has some resentment over the way Elliot and Darlene treated her as a child do you think that Angela is going to be murdered soon because of the fear of her telling the FBI? Now, I don't know if, I don't know if we need to go to the murder path, but we got a little bit of insight as to Angela's feelings towards Elliot and Darlene in this scene. Do you feel like this is going to lead towards that larger narrative of Angela eventually selling out F-Society? 
Uh, no, I don't. I, I think that that's a concern. I understand Darlene's concern. I understand Caleb's question because that's a question we have to be asking ourselves in light of what happened with Romero and what happened with Gideon and what happens to loose ends sometime on the show. The concerns that Trenton and Mobley had is that are people killing loose ends associated with this hack? If so, is it you? Is it your brother? Like who is involved in ultimately doing this? I understand the concern. I understand the concern that Darlene would have. And Angela is a big loose end and Angela reveals to Darlene in this scene that, yeah, she pretty much knows she doesn't want to believe it. Mike, she says, Hey, I, I remember you guys made me stay up on Halloween and watch that terrible movie. And then I, it didn't even occur to me like right away. The first time I saw the masks and she's referencing very clearly that she has put together that the masks in the F society videos are linked to the discreet massacre of the bourgeoisie that Darlene and and Elliot were the people that Angela most associates with that obscure, weird movie, and that they're like boss computer hackers who have not been telling her the truth the whole time. Basically, their whole lives. They've been openly mocking her, ridiculing her, thinking she's dumb, keeping her in the dark, whatever. And she doesn't even really want to admit it. She sort of says, isn't that kind of crazy that I would... Think, think that like and Darlene gives her nothing except by saying nothing. Darlene says everything. And that's a crazy moment. I mean, that is on any other episode. That's that, you could end the episode with that mm-hmm. moment. Angela finds out that her best friends from childhood uh, are responsible for the five nine hack. But it seems to me like all along. Angela has probably known and has has buried that somewhere, has pushed that behind all of her self-help and all of her her own goals about whatever's going on. And that's really tough for a person, I think. And so Angela isn't just a person with some pure naked ambition or some goal that is untoward or dark uh, in the story here that's just personally motivated by power. Angela's covering up a lot of pain, and I think that that's a big part of what she's doing. Whether that ends with her ultimately diming them out to the FBI, it's dangerous. She's a loose end, and she's a person, I agree, with with a consistent director like Sam Esmail. You can have a visual motif with Angela, and it is unquestionable that you're right. We've seen this visual motif of just the push-in close-up of her face while she doesn't really say anything, and she's just having to own that. And she's fantastic at it. The Porsche Doubleday, like a really perfect, almost Hitchcockian-level femme fatale who's able to pull off this ice-cold, Kim Novak-esque, you know, blonde character who, what's going on beneath that surface and that demeanor, she's doing a great job with it. But you're right, it is a very clear visual motif on this on this season. And I think it's there because her story is, is messed up, man. Like, yeah. bad things have happened to her, and she's having to cover up a lot of these truths that are really scary. Mike, imagine if your best friend, who was your best friend when you were a kid? Um, his name was Ben Davis. We went over each other's houses all the time and watched uh, wrestling when we were kids. So what if uh, there was a big hack and part of the big hack, someone was wearing a, a Hulkster mask and you realize at some point that Ben Davis had brought down the world? Would you, would, wouldn't your whole worldview be screwed up? Absolutely, because you have to feel like there are some moral implications to standing idly by while someone you know does such horrible things. And that's why Angela's reaction compares so nicely to Ray coming clean right after this in the next scene when he brings Elliot upstairs for one final tap, tap, tap at his keyboard. Because I feel like both Angela and Ray are in such a similar situation. Angela's probably a little more tangentially involved than Ray is, but both know that 
someone they know has produced something that, as Ray said about his site, has grown so big to take on a life of its own. That it is harboring, while it was working for a good cause initially, it has bastardized itself to the point where you don't even recognize it anymore. And the real moral question is, do you do the right thing, in quotes, and turn in the people that you love, or do you let this thing kind of fester and build into something that it wasn't in its initial inception? And I feel like Ray is a good example of the complications that can arise from that, where he finally ends up coming clean. We can question as to when he decides to kind of throw in the towel and have Elliot turn him in, but it's clear that he feels the weight on his shoulders here of what he's been doing. I mean, Ray makes the comparison between when you recover from grief, do you either stumble or you stand the F up? And I think the big question coming out of this scene with Angela and Darlene is, is she going to stand the F up? And is she going to turn in F society? Because she knows the people that she was closest to when she was a kid are now behind things that are doing very, very bad things in this world. Yeah, and I think that's uh, I think that's a great observation, Mike. And I think that I'm so glad you you brought up the Ray scene, and linked it to the the stuff with Ray in this episode because I I thought this was some of the best stuff in a great great episode of Mr. Robot. This stuff with Craig Robinson and his monologue that he delivers, not only talking about how his wife started the business, but how he talked about how that made him feel like what happened with with the rat tail guy and Elliot was a joke, like it. It's really fantastic. I couldn't tell in the moment until Craig Robinson says, how much time do I have? I couldn't tell if he delivered the monologue he delivered to Elliot, basically saying, and that's why I'm going to kill you. Or if he delivered the monologue to Elliot, which with the real purpose was saying, and that's why I'm going to let you go. I think it reads either way until he says, how much time do I have left? And I think that's fascinating. I think it's a phenomenal performance by Craig Robinson. And I think you're right. I think Ray's version of standing up could have easily meant I'm going to stop half-assing these beatdowns and I'm just going to kill somebody mm-hmm. if they're messing with my stuff. I'm really that. Thank you. You showed me the way you were a real gift to me in the way that Vera would deliver this same monologue about all these, you know, great ideas. Oh, Elliot, you were so good for me. You know, you showed me the way brother, like you really did, you know, like you were great. Like you were my prophet. Like all the things that Vera would say, Ray's essentially saying the same things to Elliot. Like you really helped me stand up. Like you really helped me realize. And it's, not until it's entirely clear that he's going to let himself be captured that he's saying the monologue he's saying uh, because he intends to let Elliot go. I thought that was phenomenally just put together. I thought everything Craig Robinson brought was sure, certainly by this point in the season we should have expected it, but he's reaching new highs episode over episode. I'm very sorry to see this character go. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just thought this was a really great scene. Yeah, and what an arc because. Uh- Let's eulogize them a bit. I mean, Mr. Robot is a show that can bring back randos for episodes, but it seems like... It seems like Ray's going to be taken to an institution that's probably a little more of the max variety than what Elliot's current situation is. So I'm not sure if we're going to see him again. But to have him kind of come around and be almost the uh, the veritable Judas Iscariot hanging himself after you know selling his soul for 50 pieces of silver, I think, is so interesting. Because we have seen so many shades of Ray. We have seen a friendly Ray. We have seen a menacing Ray. We even saw a menacing Ray, as you said earlier on in this scene, where he's you know going up to Elliot and saying, you know, you're not going to leave this chair until you this thing's purring like a kitten then you're going to go back into your cage only to reveal two minutes later on like 
hey, help me help you. I, wa- I thought, you know, I was your counselor, but you were, in fact, my counselor. You're, you're the one that was helping me along. Again, perverting that master-slave dynamic. The allegory of the chess match in the middle of it is great as well. I mean, it's interesting to see when Elliot decides to ask for one more game of chess. I feel like initially it seems like it's out of desperation that he doesn't want to go back to this shoe. But it seems like he already knows what's going to happen. And so he just kind of wants to have one more battle of wit with him and raise last words to Elliot of be careful I feel like need to hold a lot of weight because I think Ray knows what Elliot is capable of and I think Ray knows what Elliot could possibly deal with if and when he leaves the prison and what Mr. Robot can possibly twist his mind into doing and he knows firsthand that when you think you're doing something good and something bad comes out of it it messes on you and it weighs on your soul and I just love that final image of him tipping over the chess king and that's yes. the fi- the final shot of the scene because it's sort of like the king is dead long live the king in a way this is the guy who has sort of been the big bad for the first half of the season and he admittedly goes down and now the question is we have a vacancy of power who is going to take it yeah and so let's let's talk about that a little bit because the relationship between ray and elliot uh, ray probably was what you would say like maybe a counselor or some kind of uh, some kind of administrator at the prison maybe so there's been talk about that some have said that he might be the warden because there's questions about if we're going with the one-to-one allegory that someone like Lone Star is a prison guard, yeah, maybe seems, he has maybe he has one rank. His Lone yeah, Star. it seems like he has he holds a lot of power, but at the same time, it would probably be a little too out there for a warden to do that. Again, watching Orange is the New Black, the prison administration there does completely off-the-wall things. I was expecting Craig Robinson to grow a porn stash in the middle of this, considering the stuff that he was doing. I'm going to settle on some sort of counselor, again, going with Orange is the New Black, a la Sam Healy, if you will, and that's where the dog came in. But it's clear that he was running something outside of his prison job, and he wanted to utilize Elliot for that. Yeah, and so let's let's uh, let's take that a step further. We had a lot of people give feedback about this. This is something we've talked about a ton on our podcast already. About from last season's episode ten, from the things we're looking forward to to throughout this podcast, we've theorized that, especially I have theorized that I think the knock at the door had to do with Krista's old boyfriend, Michael Lenny, whatever his name is, because episode ten starts with him basically saying, "Unless Estonia's economy falls." apart we'll never catch this guy but i've got the i've got the police looking for him cyber crime unit what he did to michael and lenny was he hacked him and he stole his dog right and for elliot a guy who's on probation that would be enough to get him sent to, to jail for a stint for mm-hmm. sure right he was already on medical treatment with Kristen. maybe he was off his probation but regardless it would it would it would flag him as somebody who knows something about computers if if that dog was involved, if it was Flipper, who Elliot says he doesn't have anymore, we've seen Angela is taking care of Cordy. We have no idea who's taking care of Flipper. That would make sense because maybe Elliot got caught for that crime, and this is what this is what happened. Maybe Krista even turned him in, and the knock at the door at the end of season one was the police arresting him for that crime, and that's where season two goes forward after that. So if you read that way, if you read that theory, we've been talking about a ton, and we 
had Jonathan Schwartz uh, had emailed uh, very, his similar thoughts. He agrees with that theory. Chris Eden has suggested that. The hack of Chris, uh, Chris's boyfriend is all Chris could think of that would be somewhat commensurate with the sentence. And the, there are just a lot of questions about who could have been, why Elliot could have been in jail or who. But if you read it as he was in jail for a computer crime involving a dog, then Ray as a counselor, as we've talked about, makes a ton of sense. Yeah. Because he would say, hey, you're the computer guy, right? And Ray using a dog to work his way in and try to make nice and make friends with Elliot, form the initial bond with him, also makes that sense. Not just as a Sam Healy from Orange is a New Black-like therapy animal, but as a specifically targeted move to make an inroad with Elliot. He knows that dogs are something that this guy has some affinity for, for some reason. His crime was related to stealing a dog. Maybe I can make a connection with him because of that. So he just drags up some dog. There's even a theory on Reddit, by the way, Mike, that if you go back to season one and you look at the scene where F society is freeing the dogs after they've burned up the, the drives, that Maxine is actually one of the dogs that was freed. Who knows? Oh, maybe that wow. was, maybe that was just a really great actor or actress that they wanted to recast as Maxine. Uh, but it, it, it's definitely an older looking golden retriever type dog. So, or bloodhound, I should say, I think that they're pointing to who knows whether that connection is really there or not. But, if you read it as Ray making those inroads, then Ray's relationship with Elliot initially should be counselor and and person who needs to be counseled, which is, of course, why Ray would say to Elliot, uh, I thought that I was going to help you. Like, I thought I was going to do something for you, but you actually did something for me. But the I thought I was going to do something for you speaks to his role again as some kind of counselor. So there's that aspect of that. And then you could still read, even though the reality wasn't exactly how we saw it. I think the fact of the matter is Ray was a prison counselor or some kind of prison administrator who also had an illegal business. And he tried to use Elliot's help to help support that illegal business and Elliot ultimately exposed it to him such that he was willing to let Elliot turn him in for it. The reason that that makes a lot of sense is that when the cops arrest Elliot, or not arrest Elliot, but when Elliot walks out of, mm-hmm. when, when Ray's being arrested, the cops say, stay right here. And then we don't see any result of that, except later on, Elliot does get out of prison, right? Yep. He gets a letter saying, you're getting out. And I'm gonna, my question to you is going to culminate in all of this. Elliot's quote, right before that king is turned over is just as important to me as him saying to Elliot, be safe. Because what Elliot says to him in that moment is the, from the great chess master. Do you have that quote, Andy? Yes, from Spencer Bledsoe, the chess master. Uh, <laughs> yes. no, from, a, from, a man, from Emmanuel Lasker, when you see a good move, look for a better one. So this is my question. Elliot was getting dominated by Ray in chess. Now you can chalk it up to he was getting dominated by Ray in chess. Because he was clouded with Mr. Robot in his head. And until he put Mr. Robot in his, out of his head, he could never beat Ray. And then in this game, he does beat Ray. He checkmates the king. And there's Ding Dong, the king is dead, long live the king, and all of that. And Elliot's move is when you see a move, find a better one. My question is, was Elliot playing Ray the whole time so that he could get out of jail early? I mean, when you ask if Elliot was playing him the whole time, you have to encapsulate Mr. Robot in there as well. Yes, encapsulating every aspect of Elliot. Was Elliot running game on Ray such that Ray thought he was taking advantage of Elliot, but that Elliot... Elliot was a pawn in a larger game and that Elliot may have even worked with the feds to set Ray up so that he could take him down. I definitely think that's a possibility and especially utilizing some of Mr. Robot's skills. Like you said, I do think it was sort of like, 
I'm going to compare this to the fusion dance from Dragon Ball Z, where two individual fighters uh, could not overpower an enemy, but once they combine their skills into one literal being, then they're able to do so. Like you said before, I think Ray sort of had to tell Elliot, you're not going to beat me until you really access that part of your psyche. And now that Elliot is able to do so, it'll be interesting to see if there, if we do get to see a little bit of the filling in the blanks of when he reached out to the feds about getting involved with if, if possible, or if he just knew as he talked about in his voiceover, I opened it up to all these advertisers. I made it very public so that the feds would swarm around him, but this is setting up such interesting events afterwards because now Elliot has direct connection to the FBI Antonio, what do you think the chances are that, you know, the FBI is going to help and White Rose are going to help get Elliot out of prison? He gets brought into the FBI for questioning. He's going to be in an interrogation room with Dom DiPiero. Yeah, I think that's a great question. I'm glad you asked it because I think the natural questions that flow from if Elliot was purposefully working with the FBI to take down Ray to get himself out of jail, could he really hide what he was doing in hacking the FBI while he was working for Ray? Like, mm-hmm. I don't I don't know computers that well. Maybe he could. Maybe he maybe he could have found some way to use protocols that would put him outside even the eyes that he knew were watching such that he could turn around and hack them. I don't know if that entirely possible or if he just saw this in the moment and made the play but now that he has made the play clearly something happened even if it's ex post facto even if he sets him up after he sets him up he does anonymously let the FBI know they do close in as part of that he gets his sentence commuted uh, and he's out earlier maybe that's part of it he's still got to be on their radar as the guy who did this and I think that it's really it's really an interesting position to put your yourself in if you're Elliot Alderson. The last people that you want to talk to are the FBI for any reason. And so he ends up in that position as a result of what he did with Ray. Maybe it was strictly to save his life. Maybe that is maybe that is the case. And maybe he was he was didn't have the read on Ray at the point by the end of the scene that we all get on Ray, which is that he was ready to turn himself in. But maybe he thought, this is it. This is me for my life. This is what I'm doing. Earlier in that scene, he tells Mr. Robot, he needs us right now. As long as we're alive, we're good. But the implication being, and Mr. Robot's concern being, as soon as he doesn't need you anymore, you're dead. And so maybe Elliot just felt like, well, I'd rather be alive and having to talk to the FBI than dead. I don't think we're done with this, though, Mike. I think that that I think you're right. I think putting him uh, himself on the FBI's radar, very uh, this is a move that's going to have some consequences. Absolutely. I mean, the question is, would he be brought in anyway because of his connection to people like Gideon and Angela as well as he's sort of like a third party to them? And I mean, maybe in a similar way to my theory about Angela, Elliot can sort of say, well, you know, I was using my hacking skills towards this type of stuff. You know, I I don't know if him hacking the FBI was part of this larger game or if this was more of an F society thing. And obviously Darlene is not linked to F society just yet until they figure out the Romero files, but he could kind of get in a room with DDP and say, you know, yeah, I'm a hacker, but I have no connection to five, nine. Will he be able to make that pass off as a credible lie? I mean, as Leon says to Elliot later on, lying ain't your friend, cuz. So we don't know how exactly the uh, the session between the two of them is going to go. But I love this idea of getting these two people in the room because it's almost like Tommy Lee Jones meeting Harrison Ford in The Fugitive in a way. You have this person who has been super on point in connecting the dots and has been chasing after Elliot, the face behind F-Society this entire time. To get the two of them in a room, we'll see if DDP's skills 
muscles hold up and if she's able to really sniff out who he really is. I didn't kill Tyrell Wellick. I, I don't, don't care. care. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, you're right. And then Elliot's going to have to jump off of some kind of giant waterfall. He'll have to get put. No, Mr. Robot will push him out of it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, perfect. Yeah, perfect. Good idea. That that will all work really well. Um, yeah, I didn't do it. It was the one-armed robot. Yeah, that could easily come <laughs> into play. Uh, but no, I, I think you're right. And I think the other thing that's that's telling on all of that front is... Now that we know Elliot was in prison, theoretically somewhere where such things are tracked, uh, Gideon came to visit Elliot. Darlene came to visit Elliot. Angela came to visit Elliot. Two of those three people are already on DDP's list. DDP met with Gideon. DDP has been watching, and we know she is anticipating meeting with Angela. And she is in the position to put a lot of these strings together. The greater theory you know, that, that we have talked about a little bit on this podcast is... Is Elliot coming in as a black hat hacker, coming in as somebody who wants to cause problems? Uh, is he going to ultimately work with DDP and become a white hat hacker and be someone who fixes problems? When he realizes that the Dark Army is out for some greater agenda that wasn't his and that will actually hurt more people, not just the Ahmeds or the people that were running the turkey shop, the turkey sandwich shop, but like just regular day to day people, the dumpster fires and everything that's happened since 5 9. Maybe Elliot it can be convinced to work against the Dark Army and to pretend to still be a pawn in their game, but eventually find a better move. And I think that this this quote from the chess master is really important because I don't know whose interpretation of better, uh, who, what, where are the moves that are being made, uh, who's, uh, where, when Elliot has found good moves, is he looking for a better one in every context? How long has he had that quote in his head? Is that a mantra that he lives by? Is that something that we're going to see play out later i think that it's fascinating to think about how that whole story may have been his his own design ultimately and maybe not maybe the letter a lot of people are interpreting elliot's release papers as the letter that elliot's going to get from the dark army leon at some point says you're going to get a letter on tuesday do what it says elliot later finds out he's getting released from jail are you reading that letter as this as the release papers or do you think he's getting a separate letter with different instructions from the dark army I mean, when we see Krista holding a piece of paper and she says, this is good, right? You have to assume that that those are the release papers. Because I feel like if Krista was holding on to the Dark Army's letter, A, she is dragged way too far into the web than I think Elliot initially anticipated. And B, I feel like that would be Elliot revealing his hand way too much. So whether it's the letter or whether it's just release papers, I feel like Krista is not, does not know about that facet of it. I think the assumption is that is that when Leon was talking about the letter, and I don't agree with this assumption, I think that the assumption is that when Leon was talking about the letter, that he meant you're going to get release papers, right? That, you know, that that's the letter, that the, the release papers are the message that was coming from the Dark Army. I just, I think Leon saying do what it says gives op- gives open the interpretation. Release papers are release papers. Elliot doesn't really have a choice to not do what it says. Yeah, exactly. he's no, getting you released. stay in jail. <laughs> yes, he's getting released from jail. So I don't think I think that those papers are maybe the Dark Army arranged Elliot's exit. Maybe they didn't. But I think Elliot's getting a separate letter from the Dark Army that we haven't seen yet. And that's what, I, that's what I'm interested in. But did Elliot on his own come up with this plan to topple Ray? Is it serendipity? Is it something he found while he was looking for something else? Did he, did he 
have to pivot away from something where he thought he was getting killed and just even though it put him in the crosshairs of the FBI, sell that out? I think that all remains to be seen as we find out more mm-hmm. about Ray going forward. But I think those are the questions we should be asking after this episode. Speaking of the Dark Army, I mean, can we get to Leon? <laughs> Let's do it. Leon's king. He's the king of Leon. <laughs> I like what you're saying. And he and he got to use somebody. <laughs> Yes, your sex is on fire. It really is. So that is, uh, yeah, Leon's a king. Leon is awesome. Like everything that we wanted out of Joey Badass playing Leon on this on this show, I think sort of culminates in this realization that Leon has not always been what it seems. And when you consider that Leon is Elliot's connection to the Dark Army, the Dark Army is the one giving Elliot the Adderall. What is the plan here, Mike? Yeah, I'm not entirely sure. Maybe the Adderall was another form of social engineering in a way for Ali to get close because uh, there were theories going for a long time that Leon was a construction of Elliot, not necessarily a Mr. Robot, but some sort of imaginary friend because Elliot kind of doesn't have friends and the friends that he does have end up in trunks of cars by the end of a season. And so I think people were a little incredulous to being tuned into the idea of Elliot having a friend. And it turns out that he did have a friend, but this friend sort of befriended him for more nefarious purposes but to just have him be the undercover for lack of a better term badass and making certainly making another ass very bad by the end of that scene was just (laughs) so much so much fun to watch and joey badass did a great job with it he did a great job with his character in general It, it was sort of like a character that you could could be played rather blasé by any sort of actor, but they really were able to make that character very significant. And I would want to compare his comment on the Sword of Damocles to what Ray says a little bit. You know, Ray tells him, be careful before he leaves. And Leon says, after the thugs encounter him for the first time, says, just remember, cuz, sitting under the Sword of Damocles, which, for those of you that might not know, the Sword of Damocles is the story about a man who trades places, I believe, with King Dionysus uh, for unmitigated power but in contrast or in exchange there's a giant sword that's dangling above him on the throne that's connected by like a horse hair i believe it is and what it sort of represents which loosely quotes uncle ben from spider-man is with great power and fortune comes great danger and so i feel like it's interesting to find these guys who have been part of elliot's construction the entire time and part of his own little world are backing out of the narrative but also cautioning elliot about what's to come and whether they're going to be harbingers of doom is yet to be seen yeah, I mean, any, it's that whole with great power comes great responsibility. And Mr. Robot is pushing Elliot to become a leader in this episode repeatedly. And you're right. Like, it, it could be a harbinger of doom to say, like, guess what? As a leader, heavy hangs the head that wears the crown. Like, this is ultimately going to be something where if you are leading, you're going to have a lot more responsibility. And you're going to have this thing hanging over you at all times, which could literally end you. And so that's what you're going to take if you take this on. And Elliot made a power move to get rid of Ray. There's no question about it. And that's where some people, I think, might be reading it more of Ray having a more important role in the prison than just a psychiatrist or a psychologist or somebody that would be in, in like, a, like a counselor, like a Healy, that Ray might be really important because – Leon says, like, half the guys in here, and by the way, Leon, not very good at math. He says <laughs> half the guys in here 
want to kill you, basically. Half of them love you. Half of them want to kill you. Half of them just want to twist twist shit up. And then it's this last half you got to worry about. I was like, I'm pretty sure that was three halves. <laughs> I'm pretty sure but, you're talking about two entire prisons of people yes, at that but point. but that's fine. That's fine. He's pointing out that, that Elliot's work with Ray did not go unnoticed and that he's going to have consequences as a result of his power trip or seizing power as a result of his taking the king down. And sure enough, uh, some of the king's subjects want to come up to Elliot and want to start a mess, want to twist some stuff up. They mentioned bitcoins, which is, of course, the secret word on this episode. And they lost ah! some... Yes, yeah, the secret word. You want $100 and you have to scream like Pee Wee Herman. It's perfect. But yeah, you have to... Uh, you have to deal with these guys now because you, you took out the king. Like, they're going to put this on you. It's hanging right over your head or other parts of your anatomy. And I think this is really tough for Elliot. I don't think he necessarily considered this. Weeks have gone by. His face is fine. Like, he doesn't really have the marks on his face at, at, by the end of this episode. But he's got to deal with, with these guys who are probably right. Are you reading this? That they're, they're COs, they're corrections officers. They're just other guards in the prison somehow. Yeah, you'd have to assume so because I think that's the only reasonable explanation for why they would be invested in Ray's website. I don't think Ray's going up to prisoners and being like, hey, you guys want Thai girls? Invest in my website. You know, I'll sneak you into my office later on. It's, I think that these guys are CEOs that are a little rowdy and uh, a little, for lack of a better term, rapey later on. <laughs> Yeah, terrible. But yeah, that's that's ultimately I think the read that I have on these guys as well. And yeah, they're they're a little white supremacisty, even though one of them seems to be uh, some kind of uh, not white supremacist. But they look like skinheads a little bit, and they use racial epithets they're throwing around. And they're certainly not the most refined guys. So if you wanted to say they're CEOs, they would meet with the portrayal I think of CEOs that you see on other on other TV shows. These are the the kind of guys that start trouble and that would be involved in a business like that unabashedly and that would be doing negative things like buying drugs to sell in prison or whatever it is so that connection makes a lot of sense they do want to hurt elliot leon does stop them with some awesome murder skills and some terrifying murder skills mm -hmm. uh, when he's he's reprogramming i think he's performing some sort of colostomy on that gentleman uh it's a very dark moment but it's a, uh, it's a, it's a metal enema if you will yes yeah, a little metal enema that's uh with friends like these who needs metal enemas? But that is ultimately what happens with Leon. But then Leon does drop the knowledge. Like he says, uh, if you see White Rose, tell, tell, tell her I looked at, I, I did good for you, right? Which begs the question of what, what is Leon's involvement in the Dark Army? I mean, I won't spoil The Wire too much, but I think in watching The Wire, you get to see instances where gangs in that case sort of send their own, have their own men on the inside who help aid people in this case of the wire d'angelo barksdale for example i mean is leon a prisoner who worked with the dark army did he purposely get himself incarcerated did he decide to work for the dark army in lieu of his own reduced sentence time there are a lot of question marks left open with leon unfortunately i don't know if we're going to be getting a lot of answers from it it seems like this guy he might be another one of these again randos that make appearances later on but it seems like he primarily existed for the prison narrative so i don't know how realistically we're going to be seeing him after this episode yeah he'd have to get out right that would be pro unless elliot's going back to jail he'd be that'd be the only way we would see him and i think that we could see him again um he just have to would have gotten out of prison but i i think you're right i think until then i think it's highly questionable whether or not we'll see him again i think that i think that this is all 
really this is a huge episode in terms of growth for Elliot because in I mean obviously it's not real growth because Mr. Robot's not gone away. Elliot's made some peace with him. We've already talked about whether that's good peace or bad peace. But throughout this this stuff with Leon. Elliot takes Ray down after he takes Ray down. We do have the scene in the chapel. Ray Donovan coming to Showtime. Ray Donovan coming to Showtime right after House of Pies. And yeah, <laughs> this is uh, this is Elliot going into the chapel and we talked about this scene a little bit where he's approaching for his god but Mr. Robot comes up and Mr. Robot does the manipulation there and does push Elliot and does say, you're a leader. Elliot even says, I don't want to be a leader and Mr. Robot's advice is you asked me how to finish this that's what you need to do you need to lead and then elliot's voiceover right before all this murder stuff goes down with these guys trying to get the jump on him is elliot saying i was on a route to cure myself of mr robot the regimen was supposed to be that path i never thought the regimen would be the thing that would lead me right back where i started people always told me growing up that it's never about the destination it's about the journey and you've joked about this mike what if the destination is you what if it's all always you and he's burning his notebook he's burning mm-hmm. his 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 journal of keeping mr robot at bay so we not only leave elliot in this episode with with what's happening with Leon and the fact that White Rose has been asking after him, we leave Elliot with a Mr. Robot who has pushed Elliot to become a leader. It was an Elliot who's literally burned his regimen and saying he's essentially made his peace and that he is the journey and the destination and that he's ready to kind of push forward warts and all with Mr. Robot. He even tells Krista, like, we're at peace now. We're good. We look out for each other. And there is some connotation to him also burning the Red Wagon notebook in Hot Carla's Red Wagon. And I know there were some theories going about about how Carla, Hot Carla, uh, that's a surprising tongue twister, about how she, she might have served as a totem if there was, this was a constructed role that Elliot built. Uh, I, from what I've gleaned, this actually might... Hot Carla might just be like a transgender prisoner, and maybe they call her Hot Carla because she has feminine features. That might be it. But yeah, he's burning his regiment. And I also find the irony in his statement of, who would have thought my routine would lead me right back to where I started? When you saw with that daydream montage at the very beginning of the season, that you doing the exact same thing every day is going to dig yourself into a rut where you cannot climb out of that hole. So I just found it funny that he thought his solution to trying to to escape his norm, his the normative parts of his life is to do the normative parts of his life. It, it's just such kind of backwards logic that fits Mr. Robot uh, very, very well. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. His backwards logic is it's very telling because he's he's lying to himself in a way. Later, when he get, he meets with Krista in the great jaw dropping reveal. She's looking at those papers and she says, this is good news. You're not happy about it. He's not sure about it. She's asking about Mr. Robot. Then the curtain starts to fall and and the world starts to be revealed when she asks him that great question. Like, Elliot, I need to ask you a question. Where do you think you are? Right now? Are you are you are you a Scrubs fan, Antonio? I'm not. Is this a this this is a Scrubs moment? So I won't I'll spoiler alert for Scrubs. There is arguably one of probably the best moments of that show, which is ironically more dramatic than it is comedy. There was an entire episode where uh, John, uh, Perry Cox, who is played by John McGinley, I want to say the actor's name is, his brother-in-law is played by Brendan Fraser, and there's an entire episode where Fraser's just sort of like following him around the hospital, and then they end up 
they what would they think is going to a, a kid's birthday party and it's Zach Braff and it's John McGinley and he's like oh yeah like he starts quacking wise about how much he's going to hate going to this kid's birthday party and then JD just says where do you think you are right now? And then the big twist is that it turns out it was Brendan Fraser's funeral, that he had died earlier on in the episode. And sort of like Mr. Robot, Perry Cox was sort of haunted by the specter of this person that had died, this very close uh, family member and friend to him. So I sort of got shades of that where, like you said, it's a curtain dropping. And the thing I love about this scene is, again, the cinematography behind it. Not only are we getting what some might say is a, is a sort of obvious reveal, but we're getting inklings of it. The, the one shot that I can really think of is when the things are first revealed, when she says, you're not really at your mom's house, are you? It doesn't flash immediately to the prison. It flashes to the table at the mom's house, which has served now as our sort of visiting hours center, if you will. It doesn't go directly to it. It seems like in this reveal, they are almost passing through conduits, transitional points to get to the prison reality. For example, when Elliot's going up the stairs to his cell to, to before lights out, we uh, we follow him into the room. It pans around, and we still see the room, but there's a jail door instead of a regular door to the room. And it's little touches yep. like that that I think make the transition that much more smooth. And why I think the reveal, even though we both kind of saw it coming, I still loved the scene because of the way it was oh, done. Oh, yeah, and the beautiful music that's playing is the music from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. So there is that sort of meta meaning that's going on there. Uh, and, and it's just really fascinating. And that... It's just so well done. Uh, it's a jaw dropper, even though, because as you say, the way it plays out, the way we get in these transitional moments, it's just handled really, really well and really, really smoothly. But it's fascinating because Elliot has said control is an illusion. His, his voiceover is saying sometimes you need an illusion to gain control. Fantasy is an easy way to give meaning to the world, to, close, uh, to cloak our harsh reality and escape, escape as comfort. After all, isn't that why we surround ourselves with so many screens so we can avoid seeing, avoid each other, avoid truth? He's apologizing to us. So Elliot is a player. Elliot is somebody who is is really kind of scaring me at this point. I'll be honest with you. As a character I love, as a character I root for, as a character I at times associate with, I'm not sure that making this grand bargain with Mr. Robot, who is clearly a darker side of Elliot... Even though his intentions may not be for one one specific thing or another, I don't know, man. Like I just, I'm a little scared by Elliot because I'm little, I'm a little concerned that he's been a bigger player all along than he's letting on. And this is what I love about the show: when you talk about illusions or fantasy or control or things looping back on themselves, we've talked a ton on this podcast and throughout about this greater chess game that's going on and whether Elliot's a pawn, whether he's a master or slave, whether he's exploiting or doing or being exploited. But I think in this end scene, when you realize he's that capable of concocting these grand plans, I don't think anything's off the table, including the fact that Elliot may have had a negative purpose all along that has yet to come up to the surface. I don't really know, but I think it's fascinating that he's so cavalier about lying to us and so cavalier 
about saying like, yeah, control is an illusion, but sometimes you need those illusions to gain control. And it's just fascinating. It's like, was he, did he do this whole prison thing to get himself into a different position? Like, is that, are we, do we need to be reading like, what was his greater motive here? Or was he simply put in prison and he made the best of it? I don't know. But I think that that, Mm -hmm. this end monologue, along with the line he delivers to, to Ray, one thing about that, by the way, when you, you mentioned the chess master line, you, you, you read it out. There's also Andrea pointed out to us, and I noticed this on a rewatch, that the closed captioning in that scene, after he says, when you see a good move, look for a better one. And Ray says, Elliot, be careful, like you noted. And Ray turns his king over. The closed captioning says something that Elliot never says on screen. He says, I gave Ray a chance to make the right move, and he left himself wide open to me. Now, Mike, why is that in the closed captioning and yeah, not like, are they, if, they're, if they're leaving Easter eggs in the closed captions, I think they are trusting their audience way, way too much to really dive into that. I mean, again, I don't work in television. My best guess, because as Andrea said, this is not the only time that there are either lines of dialogue or like words and lines that are added in the closed captions. My best guess might be... I don't know, maybe they submitted a script to the closed caption studio and they decided to cut the lines at the last minute for whatever reason. Yes. But I feel yep, that's my read. But I feel like there is a lot of significance there because as you alluded to before, there is a chance that Elliot might have been playing this long con the entire time on Ray and the line I gave Ray the chance to make the right move and he left himself wide open to me is very emblematic of that and even going to this final monologue the last shot is Elliot sitting in his cell but he's not miserable he has that very knowing smile on his face and terrifying I'm scared of Elliot now Mike. yeah and he ends the monologue by saying you know all this really happened this is just my way of coping with it but now I'd like it if we could trust each other again Let's shake on it. And it almost seems like there is a chain of manipulation going on where if we talked at the very beginning of this podcast about how Mr. Robot might be manipulating Elliot, Elliot is absolutely manipulating us. Yes, and if he's capable of that level of con, of sh- of shading us through months worth of prison, like, is he not capable of running cons on other people? Is he- We've seen the Sam Sepia. We know who this guy is. What isn't he capable of? Absolutely. I think there is a very good chance that we could even get to the end of these five episodes. And another big reveal will be made that Elliot was working towards this larger plan the entire time. It is not outside the realm of possibility because this is a man who is capable of much more than we could ever expect he is not only is watching the sort of damocles dangle above his head he is taking that sword and he is stabbing the ever-loving shit out of everyone around him and yeah i i the the idea of him wielding that sword and the idea that he has manipulated us and manipulated his own circumstances for the entire season thus far is so frightening yet so captivating at the same time because the entire first season he almost seemed like a perennial victim of everything as much as he tried to pride himself on being this superhero this vigilante working for the the good of the people he finds himself at the mercy of many many masters including a, a sense of his own self but now it seems like he has taken control of those masters and they are leading his chariot into the sun 
Yeah, I mean, if control is an illusion, right, uh, then is it possible that we've been we've been reading not only Elliot last season, as you're pointing out, but this season as well, as perhaps a, a, a pawn in a bigger game, as somebody who could be manipulated and who could be exploited. I think this episode, even though I was expecting the reveal, the unexpected element of the real, reveal, including how it was presented, especially in the episode with what happened with Ray is that I'm not sure about that now. I'm wondering whether Elliot isn't the bigger player, as you've been pointing out, is possible. And I'm wondering if we're not going to reach a moment sometime this season where it seems like Elliot has been exploited, and we're ending on that, and we get to a point later on, maybe even next season, where we pull the rug back even further, as you're saying, and we realize, actually, that Elliot was in control the whole time. I don't really know. Is it possible that Elliot, as Mr. Robot, has met White Rose before? Before? Has he met Joanna Wellick? Are they all part of some greater plan? Was he just a pawn? These are the bigger questions about Mr. Robot's larger story that I think are really important. But I think why Mr. Robot as a show and why this episode works so well is that even in the reveal of what happens with Elliot at the end. And even in the scene with Ray, which a lot of people I think could feel was was dealt with too quickly, I think even in those things, we are influencing the larger story, which is what is in play between these, these greater parties. What is Elliot's larger purpose? Is he aware of it? Is he not? We're serving those larger story masters, even with these things that are happening in this episode. And we're resonating really well mm-hmm. in terms of those areas. And I think that that is why Mr. Robot is is just a phenomenal show and why I think it's wrong to dismiss these things as trite twists or as a a mystery that someone guessed. This is a mystery which very much influences how I'm looking at Elliot going forward. And I didn't expect that, even though I had a feeling the mystery was coming. This guy's been lying to us, Mike, and he's been lying to us enough on a big enough scale that I don't know what else he's not, he is or isn't telling the truth about. But it's it's pretty scary. The two pertinencies between Philip Price and Angela and Elliot and Krista at the very end. I don't know if you noticed, Antonio, they are, the entire frame is filled in the background by paintings. And these paintings seem not really related, but one tenet that I at least noticed is that they seem to be very blurry. There aren't many stark lines. There are instead just little pinpoints of brightness that really stick out and define the painting. I would almost compare mr robot to that painting in a way just like you said i feel like the background is still very hazy while we just got a major reveal to happen there are still so many questions that need to be answered and sam esmail in that aforementioned interview with alan seppenwall did say that there would be some more questions answered which is great but that being said even with amidst the blurry background of the show we are getting more and more focus in on who these characters are sans philip price he still remains an enigma uh, in, a, in a shrimp shell of a man I think that we are really getting a focused view on these characters so that once the background does become a little more clear, then we'll really get to see the full picture for what it is. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think that that's why it is wrong to ultimately evaluate this as bad or good 
uh, on a on a where are we on track or off track week by week. I think this is new television. I, I've said repeatedly on this podcast, and I think I may have said it on this episode, that Mr. Robot is ahead of its time. That it isn't just about the the point two or point three or whatever in the demo the show's getting in the moment, the next day air. That this is a show that people are going to take on in a binge next summer. This is a show that people are going to do two seasons at once. And the clarity that you're going to get is not going to be as fuzzy as one of those paintings because they'll have about 10 or 15 steps further back, Mike, than us who are looking at the painting head on and they'll see the whole thing for what it is. They'll be standing on top of that room where Angela and Darlene meet, where we have the model of New York City, and they'll be able to see the whole city instead of just being on one of the streets and not really being able to place themselves in it. So I do think this is a show that itself is serving many masters. And unfortunately for the show, it does have to go under what what this show's title is, which is a bit of a handshake. It has to greet Mm -hmm. new viewers every week. It has to greet viewers as hello friend. It has to try to make progress off of some handshake of trust that was formed. My point would be that that handshake occurred at the beginning of the first episode in the first 10 minutes in that scene in Ron's coffee. And if that isn't, uh, if the show still is, is, is so far from that at this point that it's upsetting you or offending you, I don't understand. We maybe aren't watching the same show. But for me, I trusted that handshake. I've really liked seeing what builds coming after that. And I think the people that have hindsight obviously are going to get a much different experience out of it. I think it's awesome. I think the show's trying to carry uh, a lot of weight in doing that. And I think it's a phenomenal achievement, truly, what's going on. Uh, I want to clear up a few more loose ends with you from this episode that we didn't really hit too heavy, but I think might matter as we start to wrap up here. First, um, when, what, when we had a scene with, at the Smart House with Darlene and yes. F Society. And, and they're looking at a laptop when Darlene comes in. This is, uh, this is after Darlene has been waiting for Angela. We, that's the, this is the scene we see with Darlene after that. And they're looking at something on a laptop. They look a little bit happy. And they say, and this is happening tomorrow. Is, did you read that as the precursor to the teabag and that's it? I'm assuming it was an early picture of Joanna Wellick's ultrasound of a throwback Thursday. I think that's what they were <sighs> reacting to. Yeah. I mean, I, my first reservations had it be the bull through the roof story that happened in D.C. I mean, let's remember Darlene dispatched a guy a couple of episodes ago to go down to D.C. And you're assuming that this is sort of like the Scott Knowles incident, but a little more mitigated, that sort of incident of public protest. But we'll see on the next time on, there's a chance this is going to be a very F Society focused episode. We have barely seen them at all the past couple of episodes, and obviously they are a giant part of the narrative. So we'll We'll get to see, is is DDP closing in on them? Are they facing other threats? So I would say there is a chance alluding to the actions of this episode, but I feel like more likely it's going to tie into what's going to happen next episode. Yeah, let me flag a couple things for that, because I, I agree that there's a chance it's related to the teabagging of Congress when the nuts literally fall through the ceiling. I agree that that's entirely possible. I don't know that why... I don't know why Angela or why Darlene would want to know, and this is happening tomorrow. Like she had already planned for this action. She sent the guy, as you're saying, we saw the drone in the background. We could even piece together how they pulled this off. They flew a drone with the balls over a certain spot. (laughs) They dropped the balls. That's it. Teabag Congress. Like that happened. So 
Uh, by the way, we can't use it as a hashtag because I'm sure others already have for other nefarious yes, purposes. Yes, array-like websites are already using that hashtag. Yes, but it's it's happened. So that I don't know why she would be saying, is this happening tomorrow? She would know about that plan, and I don't know what they would be looking at. Cisco is also there. Cisco, a member of the Dark Army, but also a member of F Society, I guess? Like, now he is because of Darlene. I, he wasn't in F Society in Season 1, really. He was in the Dark Army, and he had issues with Darlene. So I think that that's a, it's interesting that he's there. The reason that it's interesting is another thing we haven't mentioned is in that board meeting where Angela just blows it up by demanding the file for Washington Township and gets the meeting adjourned and where the guy says, like, I asked how I could handle you. And he said, however, I want in that meeting. I don't know if you caught this. Did you catch what they said about somebody missing from that meeting? Yes. The silent partner is continuing to be silent. She is out for the meeting. This is a different silent partner. This oh. is Susan Jacobs. This is Madam Executioner. This is the person whose house F Society is living in. And she's also in these meetings with the risk management department, and she's missing. So why is she missing? Yeah. They, they even remark, like, uh, oh, if she's taking vacation, then this is uh, this has got to be – the economy must really be in the toilet or something like that if, if she's using her vacation days. Remember, she's like this crazy lawyer who they call her Madam Executioner because she would basically kill people and essentially pay off the files for when they kill people. We now know that's the department Angela's basically working with, and so she should be in that meeting, but she's not any chance. F Society's glee is tied to this. I think it's months later. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, first of all, I apologize for mixing up, for conflating Sharon Knowles with Susan Sh- Jacobs. Yeah, Sharon Knowles be dead, Mike, Knowles, yeah. Mike, Mike Bloom. Yeah, I mix up my uh, S-named affiliates of Evil Corp. Yeah, I mean, it's very eerie that we have not seen nary of her nor scott knowles since the premiere episode and they are two of the big names at e-corp and to have it only be focused on philip price and not on them is very strange the question is do you think f society would go so far as to do things to them i mean they've already kind of tortured the two of them through their actions in the premiere episode but to actually resort to kidnapping maybe even murder i'm not sure i feel like that would put them more on the radar when really they're trying to more so shrink away and use events like the teabagging to really just kind of poke fun at e-corp but it's very significant that she has been missing for so long since the premiere well yeah and the reason i i think that the f society scene here is weeks later and we're probably we're probably i mean a couple months out now since the premiere right uh maybe not a couple months but it's almost i mean it's it's july 4th well and it's it's a month past july 4th right because elliot skips three weeks at some point if you're assuming that the Elliot timeline is lockstep with the the real world timeline, uh, and maybe that's not a fair assumption. But we we're only making that assumption based on the fact that Elliot got involved with Ray to help Darlene solve the hack of the FBI, which they executed prior to July fourth, and which was done and put to bed prior to July fourth because the July fourth security stuff was on the TV when Angela was talking to the agent on that floor. We know all that went down. We know the teabagging of Congress was seven. Seven, And then we know weeks from then, Elliot has adjusted to 
living without Ray and living in prison when he's getting released. So we do know that it's weeks later. So at some point, this this is happening tomorrow stuff from F Society does happen around the 4th of July. So I don't I guess it's probably the teabag, although I just I don't know why Angela would be surprised that that's happening the next day. So it could be related to something with Sharon Knowles. I guess we're just going to have or Sharon Knowles. I said it too. Now Susan, I'm the one. I'm putting ideas in your head now. Yes, you you somehow infected me with your time paranoia. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, this is uh, this is it. Like uh, I don't know why Susan Jacobs is missing from that meeting. Conspicuous by her absence, as you've pointed out. Scott Knowles, we know he's on a red wine drunk binge. I think that's where he is. Uh, he's probably somewhere just like in like he's filming Sideways Two with a Paul Giamatti. Just like <laughs> oh, I was hoping it was Thomas Hayden Church with a bandage over his nose after F Society probably broke it. Oh, he's in it as well. Yeah, the three of them really on some kind of crazy road trip throughout Napa. So uh, I think that that's uh, that's where he is. But Susan Jacobs, Madam Executioner, not at the risk meeting. They're not sure where she is. Could be related to F Society. They're still living in her house somehow. Uh, so I don't know. Don't know where that one's going. What else? Well, might- and, oh, I was going to say, well, maybe Susan Jacobs will be, even though Angela was sort of intimidated by her own boss, maybe the real person she has to face down is Susan Jacobs when she comes back. And that could be a very interesting dynamic because Angela would quite literally be facing the person that helped kind of Un, uh, not unintentionally, it was quite intentional with shrimp cocktails and rain outside, but she was one that kind of contributed to the death of her mother. And so to have Angela handle that in the context of her larger game would be very interesting. I would, I would actually very much like to see Susan Jacobs and Angela face off. Yeah, what's, what's really fascinating about that observation is that Look, Angela takes down Terry Colby uh, or is involved in the taking down of Terry Colby. Maybe it's not her directly, but he he gets owned. Angela owns the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, the two guys, uh, the two dudes who Price kind of puts her up to owning who were involved in that. If she comes back and owns Madam Executioner, the lady who's responsible for paying off or or killing these cases that involve deaths, that was probably involved in what happened with her mother or certainly involved in that role in Evil Corp. Maybe Angela's role is just to pick off as many many of these people as possible one by one. And maybe one of the reasons she wants the internal files is she needs some more names on her hit list. Like maybe she's going about this like an E Corp Dexter and she's just creating blood slides week over week. And maybe that's what her end game is. And so she's going to constantly be moving around within E Corp and making friends and making enemies. But her goal is really to take down as many people related to Washington township as she can. Maybe that's part of it. I don't know. What other, yeah. what, what other questions do we have, Mike, you think are worth addressing before we take off here uh my only question that i have remaining is do you think ddp had a good time at that barbecue she was going to <laughs> yeah she really just blows it off it's like look angela moss probably involved uh, go do a sweep you're not going to find anything uh i'm going to a barbecue yeah look we were really concerned mike about fingerprints and about the femme to sell ddp's already got her eye on angela that's it you can you know you're not going to find anything of merit you're not going to th- find anything valuable i'm going to a barbecue yeah, the, the DDP BBBQ, the extra B stands for BYOBB. Oh, my gosh. I, when pigs fly, that's when that's going to happen. I made some despacho <laughs> for you, Mike. It's tomato soup yeah, served when, ice when cold. Pig, <laughs> he's just a little jailbroken. He's still good. He's still good. He's still good. He's still good. This is fine. We're good here. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, Go back to Russia. Yeah, I don't know what's happening. But but clearly there could be there could be something going on at that barbecue. Doubtful. Uh, I love DDP. I love that she's just blowing that off and being like, uh, oh, yeah, and, I'm going and, to a barbecue. Uh, before I like 
sign off of the Mr. Robot podcast. I mean, I've commended performances all over the place, but Grace Gummer is so, so good. I mean, as the daughter of Meryl Streep, I feel like her genetics do show here, but she's just such, I would argue, the most likable character on the show. Uh, Characters like Angela have kind of broken bad a little bit, and while we have seen humanity in characters like Darlene, DDP, in seeing a little bit into her home life, just seems like a little bit of a broken person, but someone who really has a mission and is very good at her job. And it's tough because this is one of the cases where I'm actively rooting for her, but that would also mean rooting against these main characters. When she does well, they don't do well. So it's tough to balance those likes out. Yeah, I mean, maybe Darlene will be the one who broke off the engagement. We know Darlene did the same thing with Cisco. So my my money's still on Ollie. Yeah, I, well, we have to keep in mind, Grace Gummer is the one who broke it off. So I don't know. I think she's a great – I think DDP is a great character, and I think you're right. I think that the only thing I disagree with about is I don't love her. Sometimes I, I want her to go down because she's coming after our the people that we would normally be rooting for. But I do think she's likable enough that I think the door is open for them to take on a more white hat role like we've been talking about and actually help the FBI take down the Dark Army if the story progresses to that point. So I do think it's important that we keep Grace Gummer slash DDP likable enough that if our if – our, so she's not at odds with our people should they ever come together that they that it makes sense. And I think that's, I think we're still right there in that zone. It, it does bother yeah. me when she's like, oh, Angela Moss. Oh, yeah. Hmm, I'm just going to stand right here and, uh, and wait for you to take your call. Oh, I'm sorry. I don't mean to interrupt. I don't like that bit of she's a little too forward in terms of being abrasive and, and, and the way she breaks people down. I don't necessarily appreciate that method. But I also love that she's got some clear opinions about this thing and she's just waiting and progressing, letting it all play out, letting people hang themselves with more rope. I do really like this about about. DDP. I think it's a, a very well-written character. And and either they could be building up for them to work together or they could be devastating and build her up as this really likable character only for her to get her throat slit at Elliot's hands. I feel like it's got to be an either-or. This woman is not escaping completely tangential to the scene. She's going to become a very, very key player in these next few weeks, which, again, I have to say what I said at the very beginning of the podcast. This was such a revelatory twist, but not only did it kind of blow our minds about the previous seven episodes, it makes the next five episodes so open. Now that Elliot is presumably going out of prison and now he's going to ingratiate himself back into F society, or is he? Are we going to find Tyrell Wellick? How is he going to interact with the FBI? There are so, so many questions for only five episodes, and I cannot wait to see what is assumedly going to be very pulse-pounding television for the next five weeks. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it as well, and there are, even as you have major narrative moments being set up, you have all these little questions. Trevor had wanted to know, why why is Sharon Knowles referred to as my silent partner in crime by Price? I don't think we have the answer to this, but maybe Sharon Knowles was part of a greater scheme, and maybe it was actually important that she die. And maybe Joanna knew that Tyrell would do it. I don't think that that's clear. I think that that's something, it's not a major narrative point yet, but it's one of those threads that's starting to peak up that deserves to be unraveled. Uh, I'd love. We also had a really funny tweet from Gianfranco who said, is Angela the best person to play cards against because her poker face is awful? And again, that it's a funny observation, but is that her poker face or is she purposefully showing these sorts of things yeah. so that she can manipulate people that are – I love that. I love that the show is, is operating – it just luxuriates Mike in the gray. Like it just I, uh, does so well in those gray areas. I don't know if it's her poker face as much as she would take like – 
five minutes to play a hand. That's the problem I would have with Angela at the poker table. Well, she'd just be repeating to herself, like, you are, you are valuable. Uh, your two kings are valuable. Um, your pocket <laughs> aces are, are very confident. You will bet well. Yeah, I don't know exactly how that works, but yeah, it probably wouldn't work very well for Angela in a game of poker, but I do feel like she's playing some kind of game, and maybe her lack of poker face is, in fact, a poker face. I think that that's something that this show can pull off, especially a show where, with such a virtuoso moment in it as this one had with the sequence of Elliot revealing the prison. I think that once you establish that and this is the kind of show that you are, then all of this stuff could have double meanings, could have double reads. All of these characters could be secret kings when you thought they were pawns the whole time or secret queens. I just, I love, love, love that about this show. And it, there's just, it's just so well constructed. We had a great email, not related to this week's, but last week. Lauren Stevens weighed in and, and essentially Lauren pointed out the, the similarities between Elliot looking in that trunk for Tyrell and Elliot finding Shayla in a trunk uh, mm-hmm. and that the guilt of Shayla's death may be as similar to being the, the guilt of Tyrell's death and that maybe he really is feeling guilty about killing Tyrell uh, and, and maybe Mr. Robot doing that and all of that. I think that that ties into this episode in that, Elliot maybe is trying to confront that guilt. He says, I just want to know so I can stop denying it and move on. But I still think that's a lie. I really do. And I think that Tyrell is not dead. I think the stuff with Joanna is too on the nose for Tyrell. I think we had the phone call. I think Tyrell's still alive. I think there's a much bigger story in play with all of these people that we're going to lens back at some point, like we did at the end of season one, and see the board in a different way. And I think that's what we're going to do. Yeah. We, we talked a lot in this past two podcasts and throughout the course of this season about how the larger game seems like a game of chess, but I would argue the game has changed and we're almost playing Stratego now, where it's not just <laughs> chess, but... There are pieces where you're sort of going to have to guess, okay, what is this piece? And sometimes there are bluffs, and sometimes you can get off with those bluffs. Sometimes you're going to land on a bomb. Sometimes you'll be the miner to defuse those bombs, those logic bombs, if you were. So I feel like after this revelation, the game has really transformed, and I just... I can't say it enough. I can't wait to see how this plays out for the next month and a half. Yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. Very excited. That's awesome. And, uh, Mike, I couldn't be more thankful for you joining us over these last two episodes. I've really appreciated having your perspective on things because Josh and I, we get simpatico about these sorts of things. So it's great to have an outside perspective. Very thankful that you've been here. And I'm just as thankful for all of the feedback we've been getting about the last few episodes and, and that you guys are involved with us in talking about this story and breaking it down because it, it like i said it really is fascinating it's fascinating if you're one of the pieces on the board it's fascinating if you have one view of the board or mike as you pointed out it's fascinating if someone turns the board around and helps you see it a different way and i think you've done that i think all the feedback we get does that for me so i'm really thankful Absolutely. for all of that and I need to thank you guys profusely. I mean, hopefully Josh will be back next week. I see his desiccated ponytail next to me, so hopefully (laughs) that means everything is still okay with him. Mr. Robot is a show I absolutely love talking about because every episode really does feel like a movie in terms of depth, and I love that analysis. I love the double meaning, the triple meaning, the symbols, the pop culture references. There is just so much that is sort of in this stew of a show that is equal parts spicy and sweet and salty and just leaves a really great mixed taste in your mouth. So thank you for letting me try some of your stew, and thank you for letting me come back for seconds 
I am well supped, and I cannot wait to listen to what you guys have to think about the rest of the season. That's a very hearty metaphor you've made there, Mike. Thank you for that. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, thank if you, you didn't for notice, that, I am extremely hungry after two-plus hours of podcasting I can tell, about yeah, the show. You, I'm sorry. You got, you got a stew going. I appreciate that. Yeah. So thanks to everybody. As, as always, subscribe to what we're doing here at the Mr. Robot Podcast on Post Show Recaps. You can do that by going to postshowrecaps.com slash mrrobotitunes, postshowrecaps.com slash mrrobotitunes. You can subscribe to our main Post Show Recaps feed at postshowrecaps.com slash iTunes. That'll get you everything, including the Mr. Robot Podcast. You can always tweet at us. I am at AC Mazzaro with two Zs and one R. Mike, if someone wants to tweet you, I think it's at a Mike Bloom type. Is that correct? That is correct. And you can also always tweet at Josh. Josh is at Round Howard. Mike, do you have a hashtag people should use when they want to talk about this podcast episode? I have a few options. Uh, Mr. Yodbot, uh, Rattleshank for my ingenuity, I guess my MacGyver-like tendencies with the items that were being sent to Joanna. Uh, Ray Downovan coming to Showtime. What are you in the mood for? Uh, I like uh, Ray, Ray Downovan or, or, yeah, or the, uh, the Yodbot, Mr. Yodbot. All right, so either or, pick yeah. your fancy. Pick your fancy if you're a violent person, Rattleshank, if you're not, Mr. Yodbot. You can tweet at us using those hashtags and talk about this episode. Uh, we love it if you do that. We love your feedback. And, oh, by the way, one last thing. We haven't been podcasting this whole time. We've actually been in jail. Goodbye. <laughs>